Hey friends, welcome back to the New Discourses podcast. I'm James Lindsay. I'm doing this huge series on critical education theory, also known as critical pedagogy. Pedagogy being a theory of education. And I'm trying to break it down for you, and you will have realized that if I take a couple of diversions from this project, this is going to continue, but this is actually a weird kind of diversion, kind of like the Groomer School series that I did, which, by the way, if you care about what's going on in education, you want to know what's going on in education, you need to go listen to the Groomer Schools. What I've been doing for the mainstay uh, series is to follow, (laughs) allegedly follow this book, and then the books it recommends to go through, but what what's happening is I'm stuck in the 70s and 80s. And I'm going to be for a while to do that. And we do need to know that history. We do need to know that philosophy. And if we had time to spare, I would just take my sweet time. And we would do this in order, and we would develop it out in a neat, clean series. But we don't have time to spare. We've got to fix education because it's not in a good place. So I'm going to do this podcast and another one soon. I'm going to kind of bounce back and forth between more modern stuff, where you're going to hear about terms that you are encountering when you show up to look at your your kids' curriculum, when you're looking into what the schools are doing or teaching or what they claim. And then otherwise, I'm going to go back and forth into the deep old theory so you can know where it comes from and what it's about. And we're going to kind of build this out in a weird kind of nonlinear and organic fashion to sound like a weirdo leftist or something. But the problem is that I need people to understand the old stuff but I need people to have points of contact and to be able to stand up and start doing something useful. And the other thing I need is for myself to have an answer to the questions that I keep getting. Do you have any resources about culturally relevant teaching? No, I don't. So I better make one. Do you have any resources about social emotional learning? No, I don't. So I better make one. And the idea that it's probably going to take me till freaking June to make one being January right now is not adequate because I, A, need to get this stuff out for people because they clearly need it, and B, um, don't want to keep getting asked that freaking question with no answer and say, oh, I'm going to get to one. So what we're going to do for this episode of the podcast, rather than diving back into, say, Paulo Freire or whatever, although we're definitely probably going to hit on him a little bit here and there. So if you're keeping up with the rest of the series, you'll want to know that. What we're going to do here is we're going to read a paper from uh, 1995 called Toward a Theory of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy by Gloria Ladson Billings from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Now, I have to clarify, this is 1995, Gloria Ladson Billings, also in 1995. She's got Toward a Theory of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy here, and she also in that same year wrote Toward a Critical Race Theory of Education. So, you can kind of start to place what's going on in Gloria's head. Um, This paper... Toward a Theory of Culturally Relevant Pedagogy appears in the American Education uh, Educational, I should say, Research Journal. Again, fall 1995. You can look it up if you want to read it for yourself or read along. And um, before I begin diving into the paper, which isn't super long, it's kind of long, uh, before I start diving into the paper, what I want to communicate is that there's this kind of like 
This isn't. This is the first paper really to outline a culturally relevant pedagogy, or what you would now hear is culturally relevant teaching, which is CRT, which isn't critical race theory technically, but yes, it does contain critical race theory. Yes, it does. That's how they're going to analyze the cultures as being structurally determined and so on. And we can talk about that as much as anybody ever wants. Um, but there are other things. There's culturally responsive teaching. And there is also this other thing. <laughs> I tried to read a book about this, and it was the craziest thing I've ever read. And I made it like three chapters, and I was just too nuts. I'm out. And I don't usually bail on reading this stuff. But I was like, nobody on earth could possibly be doing this, which, of course, is definitely going to not be true, and it's going to be a big problem, and it's probably happening all over the country, and I'll have to deal with it sooner or later. But that's called culturally sustaining teaching or culturally sustaining pedagogy. And the goal there is to sustain cultures as structurally determined objects that therefore have to be understood through critical theories that tie cultures to other identities like races or like uh, gender identities or whatever and to say that they have gay culture or trans culture or black culture you know that those can be expressed authentically through these critical theories but that also these cultures have to be sustained and protected in what they are and made politically active as such so it's really, it turns out, like I said, I'd have to look up what book it is again. I don't even remember. I read like the first three chapters and I was like, holy crap, this is nuts. So culturally sustaining pedagogy, culturally relevant pedagogy or teaching in place of pedagogy. And uh, I don't remember what the other one, culturally responsive. So they're going to be responding. These all kind of fall in this kind of umbrella that would reach over them that's called multicultural education. And so we have to pause for a moment to talk about multiculturalism so you can know what this is all about. And I kind of just told you. Multiculturalism is a hugely failed project. It's probably also a communist project, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, the idea with multiculturalism is that in a pluralistic society, say like the United States or most of the free countries of the West now, that you are going to... Um, of a variety of cultures. So rather than having like this overarching American culture, and if you happen to say have come from Somalia, that you got, you still do your Somalian things, you still, you know, cook and eat and maybe even share Somali food and you do some of your traditions and you have your religion. This is really the pluralistic e pluribus unum idea of America. Multiculturalism is something different. It's that the cultures themselves should not have any pressure put on them to change. So if you have Somalis come to the United States, and I'm not picking on Somalis in any way, it's just literally the first country that popped in my head when I started talking. If your country, uh, Somalis come to the United States, you would not impress upon them American culture. You wouldn't even necessarily, in the kind of uh, logical continuation of this line of thought, you wouldn't even want to naturalize them as citizens. You would want them to retain their Somaliness within America. And the, the, the claim within critical theory, of course, would be that the dominant culture in an area by virtue of being a dominant culture in an area, and that's even Marxist framing that it's a dominant culture instead of the prevailing culture or whatever, is oppressing people who come to it from other cultures by saying you need to change to assimilate or to fit in. And those are things they don't like is assimilating and fitting in. So multiculturalism, it turns out, doesn't work. It turns out that it makes it harder for people to communicate. It makes it harder for people to do business. It makes it harder for people to trust one another. It leads to people uh, blocking themselves off in neighborhoods and uh, of similarity and then ultimately kind of ghettoizing or being ghettoized and all the attendant problems that come with that. It causes conflict across these these problems, uh, these these gaps of 
you know, what are they? Maybe unbridged differences is a better, a better way to phrase it. it. It doesn't work and it causes lots of room for there to be conflict within the kind of broad paradigm of critical race theory or Marxism more broadly, or even kind of Hegel and Rousseau's philosophy. What multiculturalism is is a gigantic experiment in the master-slave dialectic, which is to take various cultures, stick them close enough to one another to where they have to not be able to get along and to let the dialectic, the contradictions between the cultures play out. And then when you add in the critical perspective that the prevailing culture, say if it's coming to America, and it would be the reverse going the other way. It's not some Americanism rah-rah argument, which I could make on its own merits too. It's uh, the idea that people who come to America are going to be expected to become American is a imposition upon them and uh, a form of dominating them and oppressing them. And so that would be therefore bad and therefore has to be resisted and therefore is going to be in a myriad sight of finding the problematics. In other words, there's a unlevel repressive tolerance style uh, uh, circumstance around this conflict so that, that you frame out the people who come to another country or who are within another country who want to have a different culture and then you uh, want to preserve that culture without any assimilation and you give them the moral high ground uh, in kind of a very illegitimate way for a very bad reason like that getting along with the customs and, and, and culture that you have come into or that you are a part of is somehow some weird and illegitimate and unjust imposition upon you so multiculturalism and there's a lot more we can say there's actually an excellent essay on new discourses about multiculturalism. And if you go to the website and you go to the search and type in multiculturalism, you'll, or multicultural at least, you'll find it. And I didn't write it. Uh, I actually had to get permission to repost it. It's, it's really brilliant. You should check it out. Um, but multiculturalism is a terrible idea. Pluralism, where people are within under one big umbrella like American with E pluribus unum as a backbone, uh, but they can retain aspects, whether it's religion, whether it's food and dress and, and activity, lots of different things. They can retain aspects of their other culture. Actually, it turns out to be probably a pretty good idea. Um, but these are two different approaches. And multiculturalism is just a form of internally balkanizing a uh, political entity like a country or a nation or a state or even the West more broadly or whatever. And it's really not a good idea. Uh, it's also based just like Rousseau's ideas about the master-slave dialectic and the idea that there's some kind of like noble savagery to the, to the culture that's coming from coming into the so-called prevailing culture. And, um, furthermore, I'm trying to remember the point I wanted to make because it's popped into my head like three times. Uh, the, the, I hate when this happens. We'll come back to it when I remember it in a minute. And so, what we're seeing then with these culturally relevant, culturally responsive, culturally sustaining pedagogies is the attempt to turn schools into places where this multicultural project is driven and maintained and uh, inculcated into the to the kids as though it's normal and a good idea and just the way things are and what's expected where it doesn't work. Like I said, it causes balkanization. It becomes a site for the master-slave dialectic. It causes strife. It causes conflict. It doesn't find ways to bring unity. It finds ways to generate conflict. And um, it's just really not a realistic perspective. And if you look in the critical race theory literature, etc., you'll find lots of places 
all of the critical identity Marxism literature, you'll find lots of places where they take the failures of their multicultural project and turn that into the justification for why they need more of it. That's the typical, you know, MO of a lot of these things as they create a failing project, point at the failures that look like they're creating racism or sexism or whatever else, and then say that is the reason why we need even more of this. And as an amusing side note, the other thing I wanted to say while I was saying that came back into my head and has left again. So we'll try to come back to that again soon when I remember it for like the sixth time. But we're in toward a critical theory of culturally relevant pedagogy, which is a paper by Gloria Ladson Billings from the fall of 1995 in the American Educational Research Journal. And this is kind of the first really big paper where she lays out there. Previous to this, there are other ideas. Uh Aha, I remember what it is. It is that they think of races and identity factors like gender, sex, etc. as cultures themselves, as like little nations. So I already kind of mentioned that, but you have to realize within the critical identity theories, critical Marxism, uh, or critical identity Marxism, that you really have to realize that uh, multiculturalism means whatever black culture is according to how critical race theorists see it has to be preserved as such and has to become an anchor of subjectivity uh, as Crenshaw has it, which is, if you've listened to some of the other podcasts, you'll know is a Marxist idea. It's how they are to know themselves as a subject and thus be able to do productive, the productive work or the work into the world that moves along the Marxist ball. So it's like creating nations out of identities like race, gender, sex, sexuality within a prevailing nation. And you can see how that's going to fragment, balkanize, and cause conflict. So like I said, now we're back into this culturally relevant pedagogy. And I do remember where I left off where I just now said that before I lost it again. And where I left off was to say that this is exist. This is kind of the first paper on culturally relevant pedagogy formally, but this already is embedded as we'll hear as we go through in an ongoing conversation in the educational literature about, um, culturally centered in some way or another and largely grafting in Marxist identity politics um, approaches to teaching. So we can get some sense of, of what culturally relevant teaching is, however, by reading this paper and kind of unveiling that you're going to see exactly what you think it is. It's going to be this kind of weirdo collectivism in paradoxical arrangement with weirdo um, uh, multiculturalism, and it's obviously in the nature of it being internally contradictory in that way. You're going to review; it's going to reveal itself to be a likely catastrophic failure. Now, I'll just tell you as an honest admission: this, and I'm going to do a paper about social emotional learning soon too here on the podcast. Both of these papers, and another one I read about culturally relevant pedagogy by um, what's her first name, last name Gay, Geneva Gay, uh, another big player in the culturally relevant teaching or culturally responsive teaching movement uh, or theory, pedagogy theory of education. Um, when I get when I read this, I just get this big impression that what they're really looking at is the fact that we have these gigantic schools. They have lots of different people and kids in them coming from a lot of different areas, uh, like backgrounds, especially in big city schools uh, where you're going to have people from all over the world crammed into a single school. And what they're trying, the case that they're trying to make is that, you know, it's you're, you're going to have differential outcomes based on the fact that if you say teach from an overarching American frame or a traditionalist American frame or whatever you want to phrase that as, if you, if you teach 
just that way without engaging with the different cultures. Say if you have a lot of Latino kids or Chinese kids or whatever you have, you have to engage with them on terms that they're familiar to their culture. And if you don't, then there will be differential outcomes, inequitable outcomes as they would have it. And that those must be down to structural forces. And in fact, that those produce the structural forces that are causing unequal outcomes because a perfectly responsive school would engage with each kid in its own cultural context, especially since it's multicultural and trying to preserve those contexts. And this just creates this huge problem because you can't segregate schools and you don't want to, to where all the black kids go to the black school and it can have black culture and black approaches and all the Latino kids go to the Spanish school and it speaks Spanish and whatever else. And you can have different traditional ways and all the Chinese kids go to the school that's rooted in Chinese stuff. You either have that or you have this mix where you have all the kids in one school and then they say, Basically, what you have to do is you have to find a way to be culturally relevant to all the different cultures that are present. And as a matter of fact, not just that, but if you're in a, say, let's say that you're in some kind of rural Ohio and it's like 97%, I don't know if there's any place like that, but 97% white or whatever, just to make something up. It's Portland, Oregon is what that's called. Um, you see how woke they are. Um, it is literally like 95% white, by the way, in Portland, Oregon, something very high. It's like the highest in the country, as a matter of fact. What a shock. And so if you're there, you have to do culturally relevant pedagogy that brings these factors in because they live in this so-called multicultural society. And so it doesn't really matter who's in the school. You have to be constantly doing things like incorporating culturally relevant practices, like um, one thing that they bring in from like certain Native American approaches, it's called talk story. You also might have to be having them organize a rap song or a rap battle or something in order to talk about some issue and maybe gin up public policy support for it, because of course it's going to be about making activists and doing activism. And that's generally the idea of what, that they're trying to promote in this culturally relevant pedagogy. And that is the key thing we're really going to focus on, but uh, that they're trying to create activists of course, through this program. But what I really wanted to point out with what I just said, though, is that the feeling I get is like, oh, these schools are too big. <laughs> they're, they're, they're trying, they, nothing that's big and heterogeneous is going to be, is going to be perfect. And so now they're going to like way over fig the pudding to try to fix that problem. And Part of that overfigging is going to be like, why don't we just dump a bunch of Marxism in there anyway? Because that's the way these leftist so-called reformers think is in Marxism. So that's your that's your short, short version of what culturally relevant teaching is about, is that you have these huge city schools that have people from lots of backgrounds. And there's not really a any one approach that's a good fit for like a perfect fit, I should say. There are probably good fits for everybody because of the different cultural issues that come up because of people having been immigrants, you know, that generation or one generation back or whatever, or people being in cultural milieus within this, you know, within the existing society who are not immigrants, who don't want to have to change their cultural values, that cultural protectionism that I've spoken about in terms of like Appalachia and so on before. And so the, the schools are too big, but you can't break them apart because then you'll to solve the problem because then you'll have segregated schools and if you have segregated schools, that's going to be illegal and that's going to be a problem. And so then you have this lack of a good solution. And so their solution becomes overfig the pudding, make everything like gratuitously culturally focused instead of focusing on worth, you know, important topics like reading and uh, math and science and so on. It's a, not a question of what's being taught necessarily, but how it's being taught, except that now how it's being taught 
dips into what's being taught because they're going to teach cultural competency crap instead of teaching basic skills under the guise that if you don't come at, uh, you know, Hispanic learner with Hispanic cultural tropes, then they're going to struggle to learn mathematics or, or whatever. And so, like I said, it's overfaking and putting, and then since there are all these reformists or Marxists, it's dumping a bunch of Marxism into it to um, mess up your kids. And so now we can read toward a critical theory. I'm sorry, that's not what it says. Toward a theory of culturally relevant pedagogy by Gloria Ladson Billings from 1995. And once again, this same woman in the same year, 1995, published the groundbreaking academic paper toward a critical race theory of education as well. And so the abstract reads, in the midst of discussions about improving education, teacher education, equity, and diversity, little has been done to make pedagogy a central area of investigation. So what she's saying is here we are in 1995, not a whole lot has been done to Marxify the schools fully yet. Yeah, stuff's going on in teacher colleges, stuff's going on in colleges education, the critical turn in education is under full swing, but not a lot has been going on to make actual the actual approach to teaching into something that focuses on equity and diversity. This article attempts to challenge notions, she tells us, about the intersection of culture and teaching that rely solely on microanalytic or macroanalytic perspectives. Rather, the article attempts to build on the work done in both of those areas and proposes a culturally relevant theory of education by raising questions about the location of the researcher in pedagogical research the article attempts to explicate the theoretical framework of the author in the nexus of collaborative and reflexive research. And that's a bunch of jargon gobbledygook. The most important part there, even with words like collaborative and reflexive sticking out like sore thumbs, the most important word there is uh, location, the location of the researcher in pedagogical research. In other words, What's her social position in relationship to the structures of power that, that shape society, that are the organizing principles of society? In other words, we're going to use an identity Marxist framework. By raising questions about the identity Marxist theory of location of the researcher and pedagogical research is how that would read if it was being fully clear. The article attempts to explicate the theoretical framework of the author in the nexus of collaborative, which is going to dip straight into collective, and reflexive research, which reflexive is research that's looking back. It, it, it's the, it's, it means praxis. It means that you're going to um, do the, you're going to have the research, and the way the research is going to go is by uh, having the theory inform some kind of activity, having that activity then have some result, and using a, uh, looking at that result through the theory to figure out the next step again and again and again and again. So in other words, this is the Marxist dialectical process. The pedagogical practices of eight exemplary teachers of African-American students serve as the investigative site. Their practices and reflections on those practices provide a way to define and recognize culturally relevant pedagogy. So as you might expect, usually from these kinds of things, we're not ever really going to hear a clear and concise definition. There's going to be a lot of rambling going on. So what does she tell us getting into the paper? Teacher education programs throughout the nation have coupled their efforts at reform with revised programs committed to social justice and equity. So we're going to start off by saying 
that teacher education programs by 1995 throughout the nation view reform in terms of a commitment to social justice and equity. Now remember, social justice means the neo-Marxist expanded definition of using identity politics as you, the way you get there of communism. And equity means the uh, equity literally is social equity because this actually says committed to social justice and equity. Equity could be read there as, as so, social justice and social equity, which is what it means. Social equity comes from H. George Fredrickson, who said that uh, rather than where equality is that citizens A and B are equal, equity means adjusting shares, and in this case it would include privilege or cultural shares, adjusting shares so that citizens A and B are made equal. In other words, it's the uh, identity politics expansion of the idea of socialism into not just material and economic realms, but also into cultural realms. And so what he, she's starting off with here is in 1995, teacher education programs throughout the nation are committed to social justice and equity. In other words, this identity Marxist, neo-communist, or whatever you want to call it, plan. Thus, she says, their focus has become the preparation of prospective teachers in ways that support equitable and just educational experiences for all students. In other words, ones that will lead them to, to raise a critical consciousness and to favor or, in fact, to need equity and justice to be able to function in society, but where equity is, again, a, a, a expanded notion of socialism and justice is, in fact, an expanded notion of communism. It's just rebranding socialism and communism, but to include cultural products as well. Examples of such efforts, she says, include work in Alaska, California, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And there's citations for all these, some of which are herself. Currently, there are debates in the educational research literature concerning both locating efforts at school at social sorry, both locating efforts at social reform in schools and the possibilities of re-educating typical teacher candidates for the variety of student populations in U.S. public schools. It really does say re-educating there. Rather than looking at programmatic reform, this article considers educational theorizing about teaching itself and proposes a theory of culturally focused pedagogy that might be considered the reformation of teacher education. So rather than doing anything terribly specific, it's going to be really vague, and uh, that way the people doing it can kind of get away with a lot of stuff uh, and can always kind of tell you that you're doing it wrong no matter what you're doing, and it's going to be centered in developing a theory rather than in uh, actually giving any kind of viable program with actual evidence for why you should be doing it. Uh, and then this is what you're going to use as a basis for re-educating your typical teacher candidate, as they have it here. Shulman's often cited article, she says, titled Knowledge and Teaching Foundations of the New Reform, 1987, considers philosophical and psychological perspectives underscored by case knowledge of novice and experienced practitioners, um, which means that it's theoretical, and qualitative in nature. Although Shulman's work mentions the importance of both the knowledge of learners and their characteristics and knowledge of educational contexts, it generally minimizes the culturally based analyses of teaching that have preceded it. I have not read Shulman's article, by the way, um, but what I'm gathering or what I can guess about this is that, in fact, uh, you're going to see something that's broadly within, the, if to guess, the critical pedagogy idea that you're going to have to, because it says uh, knowledge of learners, so that's going to be located uh, within each learner according to their cultural background. 
uh, learners and their characteristics, it says, and then knowledge of educational contexts, which means that they're going to be doing this through this probably that's, you know, already bringing in some of that Marxist stuff. And what I'm getting then is that Ladson Billings is saying by minimizing the culturally based analyses of teaching that have preceded it, you're going to try to twist the ratchet into the Marxist identity politics rather than the keeping it into whatever other uh, domain that it was in. If we remember from critical, the critical turn in pedagogy, that's kind of the basis for the entire series I'm doing here on the podcast. Uh, Gottsman tells us that it proceeded in three stages. Stage one was Marxist critique, then post-structuralist feminism, and then critical race theory. Uh, since I haven't read Shulman's article to comment on it, I can't say much there. Uh, but what we have going forward is in this article was so that that's, she's situating herself against the previous literature and saying what she's doing new. In this article, I attempt to build on the educational anthropological literature and suggest a new theoretical perspective to address the specific concerns of educating teachers for success with African-American students. Section 1, Teaching and Culture. For more than a decade, anthropologists have examined ways that teaching can better match the home and community cultures of students of color who have previously not had academic success in schools. So teaching is supposed to match the home and community cultures now. And again, that weird cultural relativism that anthropology got taken over by that's so characteristic in postmodernism, but and thus everything since the 80s and kind of leftist thought, um, but also uh, this kind of like weird multiculturalism that falls follows from it, that there's not some um, broadly American culture that we should be aspiring toward, like in this grand melting pot idea that we used to have. Instead, we're going to have community cultures and that somehow the schools need to be more responsive to that in order to have greater academic success. So it's the schools not tailoring themselves to the students from certain communities rather than the students from those communities not tailoring themselves to schools. That's the problem. The schools, the system is the thing. It's not the so the kid from a particular home and community culture should not be expected to have to adapt to the broader society because that would be oppression of that person. Rather, the school should have to figure out how to accommodate every possible uh, perspective. This, of course, puts me back in mind of the disability studies turn, which was around 1980, where the social model of disability comes onto the table, and now it's society that disables people who have disabilities because it regards them as disabilities and it doesn't perfectly accommodate. So the entirety of society should be geared up so that no disability ever causes any hindrance whatsoever to any disabled person whatsoever, or else society itself, the entire thing is disabling the disabled people, not their particular uh, disabilities or other issues. And so here what we're saying, what we're seeing is, the entire school schooling system, not just the school itself, but the entire schooling system needs to bend itself around every possible home and community culture, or else it's the problem. It's reproducing structural or systemic racism, for example. Here she goes on, Awe and Jordan, termed culturally appropriate, the pedagogy of teachers in a Hawaiian school who incorporated aspects of students' cultural backgrounds into the reading instruction. By permitting students to use talk story, a language interaction style common among native Hawaiian children, teachers were able to help students achieve at a high, at higher than predicted levels on standardized reading tests. So here what you have is a situation where you have a 
a group of students, they have a particular different way of, say, approaching information called talk story. And that by incorporating some of that in the specific places, you are actually able to help those kids become more successful at reading than just by throwing them into the broader school. And that's the first time when I was reading this when I got that impression. It's like, shh, dang. The problem here is that you're trying to do too much with too many kids, too many different backgrounds in one giant school, which, by the way, that's usually because they want giant football teams. Um, but you're trying to do this in some gigantic school rather than, you know, kind of more community-based schools. It would be smaller and able to tailor to an actual, you know, smaller student body that might be more homogenous and realize that that would be a beneficial way to go about things. But then I realized that then you're going to run up against the fact that, that you're going to end up creating segregated schools if you go that approach. And guess what's going to happen with that? We all know what the woke will do with it. And um, it does raise questions about whether, you know, integrating the schools and making them huge was great. And then I thought about that and thought, well, hmm, seems real. But then you get to the you get to the point where you're like looking at a neighborhood in New York City instead of some small school in Hawaii. And you're like, yeah, there's probably going to be an awful lot of kids. You're going to need an awful lot of schools. And if you're going to have like 50 kids per school, it's going to be a big problem of its own type. And so it's really not that simple of a problem to solve. But this is the basis for uh, this paper because it's the first thing she mentions. Mohat and Erickson, 1981, she points out, conducted similar work with Native American students. As they observed teacher-student interactions and participation structures, they found that teachers who used language interaction patterns that approximated the students' home cultural patterns were more successful in improving student academic performance. Improved student achievement was also evident among teachers who used what they termed mixed forms, a combination of Native American and Anglo-language interaction patterns. They termed this instruction culturally congruent. And so what we're looking at then is with pedagogy is how do you bridge the gap from teacher to student? How do you get the lesson into the student to, to have good outcomes? And then when you look at the whole picture, you might have a bunch of students who are doing just fine. And then you have identifiable subgroups, for example, Native American students who aren't performing as well. And if you can actually kind of tap into cultural things that are relevant to them, then what you can have is higher levels of success. Now, this is where that hidden curriculum thing comes relevant, though. In critical theories of education, critical pedagogy, they believe that there's such a thing as the hidden curriculum. And the hidden curriculum is actually the socializing function of school, as they would have it, and so that the school is teaching kids to be, say, American and to participate in American society. They, of course, being Marxist, would say capitalist society, but it's teaching them this, and that would be, in the cultural domain, a cultural imposition because it's not protecting the fact that their culture is equally valid, etc., etc., and, in fact, protected um, because we wouldn't want to have cultural domination and oppression going on, and you can kind of see how this thinking goes from being something that says, okay, how do we help certain kids in certain circumstances to now we've got this whole systemic problem going on that's going to require very radical identity politics, uh, identity Marxist politics to try to fix, that when they put it into practice, turn out not to work. They work in small settings, and then they extrapolate out from that, apply it in big settings just like they do with SEL, and it doesn't work in big settings because it's not appropriate there. Uh, Kasdan and Leggett, I don't know if that's how Leggett's last name is pronounced, from 1981, and Erickson and Mohat, 1982, used the term culturally responsive 
to describe similar language interactions of teachers with linguistically diverse and Native American students, respectively. So, like I said, this is all situated in a broader, you know, culturally focused um, perspective on education theory that had been going on for some time by 1995 when she wrote this paper. So she's citing examples from the early 1980s. And yet again, what you're seeing is the attempt to maintain protected cultures so that they are not imposed upon by some broad dominant, as they would say, culture or the prevailing culture. Uh, and so that cultural protection racket that becomes very profitable for these um, kind of race grifters uh, becomes the justification for these very complicated school reforms. And what they're doing is claiming, you know, well, we've got to help the particular students. Um, I know I'm pretty cynical about this, but it's all Marxism. So of course I am. Later, she says, Jordan and Voigt, Jordan and, sorry, there's two different papers. Later, Jordan, that's 1985 paper, and Voigt, Jordan, and Tharp, that's 1987 paper, began using the term culturally compatible to explain the success of classrooms with Hawaii, Hawaiian children. So making your educational approach compatible with the existing culture because you wouldn't want to bulldoze that, but also because it might actually help the kids learn. So some of both. By observing the students in their home and community environment, teachers were able to include aspects of the student's cultural environment in the organization and instruction of the classroom. More specifically, Jordan from 1985 discusses cultural compatibility in this way. Educational practices must match with the children's cultures in ways which ensure the generation of academically important behaviors. It does not mean that all school practices need to be completely congruent with natal cultural practices in the sense of exactly or even closely matching or agreeing with them. The point of cultural compatibility is that the natal culture is used as a guide in the selection of educational program elements so that academically desired behaviors are produced and undesired behaviors are avoided. So this is kind of in the, the, the line of thinking of meeting people where they are. Nothing particularly objectionable there. In fact, it's fairly reasonable that when he's talking about cultural compatibility that sometimes you're going to be able to do it, sometimes you're not, but that you're making the effort counts for something. Ladson Billings says these studies have uh, several common features. Each locates the source of student failure and subsequent achievement within the nexus of speech and language interaction patterns of the teacher and the students. Each suggests that student success, that's in scare quotes, is represented in achievement within the current social structures extant in schools. Now we're getting Marxist. Now we're getting into critical pedagogy. So she's saying, okay, there's some common features. One is that it has something to do with the linguistic interaction. How do the language patterns, how do, how do people in different cultures that are running into each other in these schools between teacher and student, how do those, those culture gaps create issues, but especially a language barrier or linguistic differences or how language is used to convey information. But then it transitions from that somewhat reasonable, potentially reasonable thing into that the definition of success itself, which is put into scare quotes, means succeeding within the current social structures, which are going to need to be overthrown because the Marxists seek to overthrow that. And that's the key here. So she says, thus, the goal of education becomes how to, quote, fit students constructed as, quote, other by virtue of their race, ethnicity, language, or social class into a hierarchical structure that is defined as a meritocracy. And that's put into italics. So the attack, the critical attack 
the, the Marxist attack on merit as an ideological feature that enables the people who are in the upper caste of society to maintain their upper casteness and that keeps the lower caste of society not only out, but also of the upper caste, but also uh, content with their lot. That gets invoked here because she's now saying that education is going to use the lie of meritocracy and they're going to come at it to use the lie of meritocracy, meritocracy to define success without critically engaging the fact that the success is a culturally contingent thing, that some other culture might have a different view of what constitutes success, and that thus there's some inherent arbitrariness or even illegitimacy to the prevailing or dominant culture. And so then you see this idea there by her saying the goal of education becomes how to fit students, and that's in scare quotes, constructed as, quote, other by virtue of their race, ethnicity, language, or social class into a hierarchical structure that already exists. And so what she's saying is that there's a dominating imposition of cultural values upon uh, kids who don't deserve it by virtue of race, ethnicity, ethnicity, language, or social class. And so, again, I said within that broad umbrella of multiculturalism, but also we're looking at this with an attack on meritocracy that these uh, that's at the heart of these kind of identity Marxist approaches. So, so these earlier studies are way more reasonable, and she's taking it toward something way more Marxist in this paper. However, she tells us, it is unclear how these conceptions do more than reproduce current inequities. So, of course, um, she's criticizing the existing programs because they reproduce the existing society and try to fit certain students by race, ethnicity, language, or social class into a program that's not really ever been meant for them that's actually oppressing them. Totally identity Marxist already. We're a couple paragraphs in. Singer, 1988, suggests that, quote, cultural congruence and an inherently moderate pedagogical strategy that accepts the goal of educating minority students is to train individuals in those skills needed to succeed in mainstream society, end quote. So what she's pointing out there is subtly that the point of education is to train students, no matter who they are, to succeed in mainstream society. But remember, the critical perspective questions at its very heart mainstream society and criticizes education for reproducing mainstream society. So culturally relevant pedagogy or teaching is already going to be way off the rails, and it's using multiculturalism as the tool by which to foist Marxist thinking into education. Three of the terms employed by studies on cultural mismatch between school and home, culturally appropriate, culturally congruent, and culturally compatible, seem to connote accommodation of student culture to mainstream culture. Only the term culturally responsive appears to refer to a more dynamic or synergistic relationship between home community, home slash community culture and school culture. Erickson and Mohat, 1982, suggests that their notion of culturally responsive teaching can be seen as a beginning step for bridging the gap between home and school. So, again, for the Marxist perspective, before I read this quote from Erickson and Mohat, um, the Marxist perspective would be that there's this school is now reproducing the dominant society's culture. Home has some kind of a, uh, you know, pure noble savage kind of culture. 
and that that imposition is a form of domination and there's a need for a, criti a critique of that. That would be the critical pedagogy perspective of that scenario, just to keep that in mind. So Erickson and Mohat are quoted here saying, it may well be that by discovering the small differences in social relations, which make a big difference in the interactional ways children engage the content of the school curriculum, Anthropologists can make practical contributions to the improvement of minority children's school achievement and to the improvement of everyday school life for such children and teachers. Making small changes in everyday participation structures may be one of the means by which more culturally responsive pedagogy can be developed. And that's the end of that quote. For the most part, Ladson Billings tells us, studies of cultural appropriateness, congruence, or compatibility have been conducted within small-scale communities, for example, Native Hawaiian, Native Americans. However, an earlier generation of work considered the mismatch between the language patterns of African American and the school in larger urban settings. So now we're going to be running flesh in, or full, full face into what's now called the African American vernacular English A-A-V-E, or formerly sometimes called Ebonics, uh, language barrier, but also cultural barrier between, say, inner-city blacks and a school system meant to uphold white society, as they would have it in critical race theory. Um, though here she's not citing critical race theory, she's citing Gay and Abrahamson from 1972, Labov from 1969, and Peastrip from 1973. So this is all kind of before that. I assume this is pronounced Villegas from 1988, challenged the micro-social explanations advanced by sociolinguists by suggesting that the source of cultural mismatch is located in larger social structures and that the schools as institutions serve to re reproduce social inequalities. So do you hear the, in, the identity Marxism creeping in there? Do you hear that? The micro-social explanations advanced by sociolinguists suggest cultural mismatches located not in the fact that people actually have some differences going on, they see the world a little bit differently, they have different backgrounds, they have different language, no, larger social structures, and that the schools are actually agents of that larger social structure that serves to reproduce social inequalities. So the schools become locations in which the Injustices, the, according to identity Marxism, the injustices of society are reproduced rather than centers of opportunity is another way to see it. She argued that, quote, as long as schools perform the sorting function in society, it must necessarily produce winners and losers. Therefore, culturally sensitive remedies to educational problems of oppressed minority students that ignore the political aspect of schooling are doomed to failure. Notice the focus here on producing winners and losers. In equity, there are no winners and losers. There's just oatmeal. Everybody's blended into a smooth winner-loser composite where everybody got a participation trophy and nobody won and nobody lost. Everybody's great, but nobody's actually superlative. Everything's just oatmeal with a linguistic pastiche on top of it of being... Uh, you know, everybody's special in their own special ways, but for no particular reason. Because otherwise, as long as a school performs a sorting function in society, it must necessarily produce winners and losers, and in equity, aka socialism, aka communism, there can't be winners and losers. Everybody has to come out the same. Ladson Billing says, although I would agree with Viega's contention to the larger social structure, in other words, to the freaking Marxism, 
Other scholars on the cultural ecological paradigm, uh, Agbu, 1981 and 1983, for example, are ahistorical and limited. Ahistorical is usually a tip-off word, or historical, depending on the weird context here, uh, is usually a tip-off word that you're dealing with a Marxist, because they're obsessed with the concept that man creates history and that theory is actually the scientific study of the development of that history over time so that it can be pushed toward its um, eschatological end at the at the perfection or end of history when communism is achieved. So other scholars in the cultural ecological per, uh, par, paradigm are ahistorical and limited, probably because they're not Marxists, particularly in their ability to explain African-American student success because we're transitioning into critical race theory, although those words don't appear in this paper. Remember, the author wrote toward a critical race theory of education in the same year. The long history, she says, of African-American educational struggle and achievement is well documented, gives a bajillion citations. Um, nothing here sticks out quickly scanning them as people who are super important in that regard. This historical record contradicts the glib, uh, the glib pronouncements that, quote, black people don't value education. Um, there's a lot packed into that glib pronouncement. It's not going to even um, try to unpack that. You can do it for yourself. I'm thinking about it for about two seconds. The critical racers always project uh, in this regard. Second, more recent analyses of successful schooling for African-American students, where she includes citing herself, challenge the explanatory power of the cultural ecologist's caste-like theory and raise questions about what schools can and should be doing to promote academic success for African-American students. Despite their limitations, the microanalytic work of sociolinguists and the macro-structural analysis of cultural ecologists both are important in helping scholars think about their, inter their intersections and consider possible classroom instructional adjustments. For scholars interested in the success of students of color in complex urban environments, this work provides some important theoretical and conceptual groundwork. So let me just pause for about two seconds to point out what's actually already happened here. We've gone from small settings of Native Hawaiians and Native Americans as justification to do this, and now we've switched to urban centers with people of color, but in particular African Americans. And they're going to be approached through exactly this same hijacked discourse that applied to Native Hawaiians and Native Americans, who literally do come from a tremendously uh, different cultural background. Um, and so you can see there's been a hijacking here of what culturally responsive is supposed to represent. Kind of a little dirty trick they pull here, isn't it? The hijacking of something that maybe has some value or merit to it, and you criticize it a little bit and say, these are its shortcomings, these are its problematics, this is why it needs to be done a slightly different way, and by the way, it's going to serve my special interests because I'm a freaking identity Marxist. Irvine, 1990, she says, developed the concept of cultural synchronization to describe the necessary interpersonal context that must exist between the teacher and African-American students to maximize learning. Don't know where the Native Americans went. Not sure where the Native Hawaiians vanished to. Not sure what other people of color in the uh, inner cities, say, you know, the various Latino cultures of which there are like a bajillion and Asian cultures of which there are like a bajillion. Not sure where they all evaporated to. But you can see the hijacking in real time if you learn to see it. Rather than focus solely on speech and language interactions, 
Irvin's work describes the acceptance of students' communication patterns along with a constellation of African-American cultural mores such as mutuality, reciprocity, spirituality, deference, and responsibility. Irvin's work on African-American students in school failure considers both micro and macro analyses, including teacher-student interpersonal context, teacher and student expectations, institutional contexts, and the societal context. This work is important for its break with the cultural deficit or cultural disadvantage explanations, which led to com compensatory educational interventions. Pardon that little bit of a hiccup there. So, again, that multicultural education understanding has to come to the fore here. Where you're seeing a cultural uh, protection racket that's actually going to work in the long run as a cultural extortion racket. Um, the, uh, what do we have here? You know, uh, all these different kinds of interactions and then the societal context that mean that's going to mean like the systems of power that the Marxists are going to see here. Um, and they want to get away from this idea of what this cultural deficit or cultural disadvantage explanations, which is to say some cultures are more successful than others. So in other words, some cultures are less successful than others. And so she's highlighted African-American cultural more, such as mutuality, reciprocity, spirituality, deference, and responsibility. Um, and that's going to be kind of this challenge to say, well, you see, she's saying, see, African-American culture, which is weird that you would tie culture to a race. Still, I still think that's a super racist thing that these people do is to make a you happen to have a certain skin color, therefore you happen to have to have a certain culture. Um, I think it's a super racist thing that they do. It's kind of like moral essentialism by how you happen to look because of the structural determinism as they would have it uh, you know, generating your character, where structural determinism is a straight-up Marxist concept. Uh, and we've explained it plenty of times here. I don't have to do it again. But the idea is to say, you know, well, if you had different cultural values, you might do better. Now, we fast forward to 2020 when the National African American History Museum at the Smithsonian puts out aspects of what white supremacy culture looked like. And it's, you know, things like punctuality, dependability, you know, focus on getting the right answers or whatever. If you look at the ethnic studies curriculum in the West Coast states here in the United States, you see things like that focusing on getting the right answer in math class. It, um, working on individual success, that these are aspects of white supremacy culture. There are lots of different things that have come out as white supremacy culture. And those things are obviously being branded white supremacists, so therefore those are bad. Um, whereas it's really clear that things like punctuality and dependability and hard work ethic, good work ethic, etc., that are actually, they're actually net beneficial for a lot of um, measures of a lot of, of, of attainment in an advanced, successful, advanced uh, society. But no, to say that some other cultural values standing in place of those might create a deficit that's leaning on those would cause you to say, well, that holding on to that culture the way you are is part of the reason why you're not generating success, which this um, conflict theory, this Marxist conflict theory of identity and culture would then say is an imposition of a dominant culture it has nothing to do with what actually works it has nothing to do with actually you know this is the way we do things here and it's going really well that's all that it does have everything to do with that because it's that's not okay that is how i really should phrase that, that that that's considered not okay so what we have to do now is protect the poor noble savage black city culture and we have to protect the native american culture and we have to protect 
the uh, Native Hawaiian culture from that imposition completely. And it's going to be the school's job with myriads kids from everywhere mixed in there to make sure every single culture is protected. And like I said, if we get it all the way down the, the, the line on this is culturally sustaining pedagogy. And I tried to read the standard book in this and it was just totally so far nuts that I was like, that can't even be real. It's just not realistic, but it's also meant to create that differences in culture that are going to have conflict across those lines, which they're then going to exploit uh, to say, look how racist things are. Look how things aren't working out, blah, blah, blah. A next step, she tells us, for positing effective uh, pedagogical practice is a theoretical model that not only addresses student achievement, but also helps students to accept and affirm their cultural identity while developing critical perspectives that challenge inequity in schools and other institutions. Uh, sorry, the challenge inequities that schools and other institutions perpetuate. Okay, so now we've got two things there that just got smashed together. First, you hear the multicultural project. We're going to... Um, lead students, help students accept and affirm their cultural identity, which is going to be tied to race in many cases, while developing critical perspectives. So now the Marxism gets shoved right into the, first we're going to have to have this multicultural project, which isn't necessarily even that great of an idea, and then we're going to force, we're going to blame the schools for not addressing everybody successfully in that way. Then we're going to force literally Marxist thought into it, developing critical Perspectives. Remember, critical is short for critical theory. Critical here means critical Marxist perspective, perspectives that challenge inequities that schools perpetuate. So the schools are blamed for perpetuating without schools without culturally responsive or relevant or whatever the hell when we're talking about responsive, I guess, teaching. Schools are perpetuating inequities, which is a Marxist concept. And it's the school's fault. And that if they didn't want to do this, they would embrace this very difficult, unlikely to succeed approach to multiculturalism in a context that probably works in certain small scale settings and doesn't graft on well otherwise. And they're going to have to do it through a critical Marxist perspective. I term this pedagogy, she says, culturally relevant pedagogy. So now we have our vague definition for culturally relevant pedagogy. And if you needed to know, culturally relevant teaching, therefore, is identity-based Marxism. And if it uses race, it's race Marxism, which is to say it's critical race theory infused. So let me just reread what her definition of culturally relevant pedagogy is, remembering that it's multicultural Marxism. She says, it is a theoretical model that not only addresses student achievement, but also helps students to accept and affirm their cultural identity while developing critical perspectives that challenge inequities that schools perpetuate. So it's a blame the school system for unequal outcomes, adopt this radical uh, multicultural model, and understand multiculturalism through identity Marxism. So is critical race theory embedded within culturally relevant teaching? Yes. How do you know? Because if you're using critical perspectives that challenge inequities related to race and ethnicity tied to cultural identity, which is exactly what it calls for. The only game in town that the critical theorists who want the critical perspectives will allow you to use is critical race theory, even if that word doesn't appear here explicitly. Several questions 
some of which are beyond the scope of this discussion, drive this attempt to formulate a theoretical model of culturally relevant pedagogy, what constitutes student success. So, of course, they're going to ambiguate upon what success means. Maybe success just means continuing to have exactly the same culture that's, uh, that you came into the school with. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it actually means getting good reading scores. Maybe it means being able to get into a good college, although that's kind of weird right now. Maybe it means having uh, being able to track people longitudinally 15, 20 years later and seeing what levels of um, success they had in life, which doesn't care whether you go to college or not. If 20 years out of school, out of, say, high school, you know, you look at the success rates and it may or may not have much to do with uh, with college depending on the circumstances, you know, but anyway, we're going to ambiguate around what constitutes student success. Cause remember part of it is to accept and affirm cultural identity. How can an academic success and cultural success complement each other in settings where student alienation and hostility characterize the school experience? I mean, almost all the kids are alienated from school period, but we have to see again, the subtle, Marxism here. Let's question what the word success means. Let's get away from that meritocracy she mentioned before. That's culturally contingent. And now let's go ahead and say, uh, you know, let's let's analyze this in terms of um, alienation, cultural alienation of students, which is going to be an identity Marxist analysis there. How can pedagogy promote the kind of student success that en engages larger social structural issues in a critical way. In other words, let's turn culturally relevant pedagogy or responsive pedagogy, whichever one we're dealing with here, into, um, I guess, relevant. Let's turn, uh, how, how can we use educational theory to do Marx, to turn the kids into Marxist activists? This kind of student, we're going to question what success means and then say, how can we promote the kind of student success that engages larger social structures? In other words, success can be measured in terms of how Marxist you make your students. And we just have this series of questions. No big deal. And lastly, oh, sorry, there are two more. Uh, how do researchers recognize that pedagogy in action and what are the implications for teacher preparation generated by this pedagogy? So we have subtle Marxism or not that subtle Marxism creeping in through identity politics and the idea of culture here. Next section, the illusion of a theoretical inquiry. So there is no possible way that you could inquire or have a pedagogy or approach education with an a theoretical neutral model. It's an illusion. Educational research, she says, is greeted with suspicion both within and outside of the academy. Among practitioners, it is regarded as too theoretical. For many acad academicians, it is regarded as atheoretical. It is the latter notion that I address in this section of the article. Clearly, much of educational research fails to make explicit its theoretical underpinnings. However, I want to suggest that even without explicating a theoretical framework, researchers do have explanations for why things, quote, work the way they do. These theories may be partial, poorly articulated, conflated, or contradictory, but they exist. What is regarded as traditional educational theory, theories of reproduction, and cites Apple here and Bowles, who are both Marxists. I don't know the other names, Weiler and Weiss but certainly Michael Apple and Herbert Bowles. Is it Herbert Bowles? Might be some other Bowles. Samuel Bowles. Samuel Bowles, sorry. Uh, certainly 
see Samuel Bowles often writes with Herbert Gintis. That's where the Herbert came from. So Michael Apple and, and, and Samuel Bowles are Marxist education theorists. So what's regarded as traditional education theory, a little weird traditional education theory versus, say, critical education theory, are theories of reproduction of the existing society, right? Uh, so, and we cite Marxists in the education about that. So what is regarded as traditional education theory, theories of reproduction, or neoconservative traditional theory may actually be a, quote, default, actually it's italics default theory that researchers feel no need to make explicit. So they're just going to uncritically <laughs> accept either some kind of a theory of reproduction of the existing society or neoconservative traditional theory. Uh, by default. They're just going to accept that. You don't even have to talk about the theory. Those are just how it's going to be. And that's where she's going to leverage that, you know, we need a critical theory of education to step in here so that you can have critical Marxist theory um, worm its way in. So she says, get this, thus the theory's objectivity is unquestioned and studies undergirded by these theories are regarded as truth or objective reality which they, of course, want to replace with Marxist theory. If we go back to the Marxist.org definition of truth, you'll remember that for them, truth, I should just find it and read it to you if I still have it on my thing. I don't know if I still have it open. Um, Marxist theory of truth holds that, uh, seeing if I have it, I don't. I already closed it. So the Marxist theory of truth says that, you know, you have rationalism uses reason to get to truth. It says empiricism uses evidence to get to truth. Pragmatism talks about truth in terms of its what, what you can practically accomplish. And they say the Marxist one's kind of like pragmatism, except that it has to wed theory and praxis. In other words, it has to bring Marxist theory into fruition. And so we want to question objective reality and what's regarded as truth. And we have to use a critical eye to say these existing theories of education, like this is how it actually works. We gathered evidence. Well, that would be an empiricist theory. That's objective. No, it's not. She's using a critical approach that says, no, there are hidden assumptions in there that reproduce, because they're theories of reproduction, they reproduce the existing social order and its inequalities, and you don't even have the critical perspective necessary to see that. In other words, a draining of epistemic authority to make room for Marxist horseshit. Citing the ranking, that's in italics, or privileging, that's her reinterpretation, so you, of theoretical knowledge, Code, 19, that's a name, Code, 1991, observes, quote, even when empiricists' theories of knowledge, that's in italics, theories of knowledge prevail, knowledgeable practice, that's in italics too, constructs positions of power and privilege that are by no means as impartially ordered as strict empiricism would require. Knowledge gained from practical, untheorized experience is commonly regarded as inferior to theoretically derived or theory-confirming knowledge, and then theory is elevated above practice, which is, again, that whole... Um, Thing with the Marxists that, that theory and practice were divided by the creation of ideology and the division of labor, which came along with the establishment of property rights, and that when we get to the communist utopia, theory and practice will have been put back uh, into unification. All practice will proceed from theory, and of course the correct theory is the social theory, which is the Marxist theory. And so here, saying that in these other approaches that theory, in other words, for them, ideology in this case, the ideology of neoconservatism or reproduction, uh, is going to be um, for, favored over uh, practice. And so what they're actually saying is 
that in the existing way that they analyze things that you're reproducing and constructing actually positions of power and privilege, they're not impartial. And so we have actually the ideology reproducing itself through schooling. In other words, you need a Marxist analysis uh, to break that down. Back to uh, Ladson Billings's words, in education, work that recognizes the import of practical experience owes an intellectual debt to scholars such as Smith, uh, Atkin, Glasher, and Strauss, Lutz, and Ramsey, Ramsey, who explored notions of grounded theory as an important tool for educational research. I'm not even going to get into the grounded theory approach. That's its own separate thing. You can look it up yourself. Additionally, work by scholars in teacher education such as Stenhouse, Elliot Carr, and Camus, uh, Zeichner, and Cochran Smith, and Light, no, Little, sorry, my bad, L-Y-T-L-E, it turns out, illuminates the action research tradition where teachers look reflexively at their practice to solve pedagogical problems and assist colleagues and researchers interested in teaching practice. Even some scholars in the logical positivist tradition Acknowledge the value of a more experientially grounded research approach in education. More fundamental than arguing the merits of quantitative versus qualitative methodology, that's what this was really about, was to move from quantitative methods that actually analyze the data of what's happening into qualitative ones where they say that it basically feels like it's working. Um, many of our studies in a fake grievance studies affair were based on qualitative reflexive research, um, as it turns out. BS. So more fundamental than arguing the merits of quantitative versus qualitative methodology have been calls for broader understanding about the limits of any research methodology. In using selected citations from Kuhn, Patton, Becker, and Goldner, RIST helps researchers understand the significance of research paradigms in education. Now, what's really happening here, by the way, this is a lot of words to hide the fact that what she's going to what she believes is that a critical or Marxist perspective is going to have the most superior way to go. And the quote here from uh, Rist, whoever that is, goes, since no paradigm ever solves all of the problems it defines, and since no two paradigms leave all the same problems unsolved, paradigm debates always involve the questions, which problems is it more significant to have solved? And this cites literally Thomas Kuhn, who the postmodernists love to invoke for uh, kind of incorrectly for his takes on how science progresses. He says a paradigm is a worldview. I think it's a he, actually. Rist says a paradigm is a worldview, a general perspective, a way of breaking down the complexity of the real world. As such, paradigms are deeply embedded in the socialization of adherents and practitioners telling them what is important, what is reasonable. And so now we're getting deep into some postmodern thinking on this. The issue is not research strategies per se, Rather, the adherence to one paradigm as opposed to another predisposes one to view the world and the events within it in profoundly different ways. The power and pull of a paradigm is more than simply a methodological orientation. It is a means by which to grasp reality and give it meaning and predictability. Now, I'm not going to go off into a whole tangent about Thomas Kuhn, but I will pause for a minute to use this word paradigm, and it's almost as though what and I don't know this to be true for sure, but because of the use of the word worldview here, a paradigm is a worldview, a general perspective way of breaking down the complexity of the real world. I'm guessing that the the word paradigm here is being used in a similar way to the way that Marx used the word ideology, but with the fact that a Marxist paradigm could actually 
fall under this in Marxist paradigms or by definition in Marxism, not an ideology. But in, in, in general regard, what we have is what, what the Germans would have called a Weltanschwung, uh, an outlook on the world. There's not a good translation in English for that word. An outlook on the world is what paradigm seems to mean. And what you see is this kind of very postmodern critical view that are deeply embedded in the socialization of adherents and practitioners, telling them what is important and what is reasonable. That's certainly very Foucauldian to talk about what is reasonable and what is not reasonable being delimited by the cultural factors in play uh, and socialization being the means by which people are brought into believing that. Now, remember that socialization is also, also the process that Marxism is fixated on. And what we have kind of here may be an inversion of an inversion, which is, so you have uh, Marx saying that human beings need to be socialized, in other words, made socialist, and then the uh, postmodernists were very obsessed with socialization and saying essentially that the dominant culture socializes people into not being that way, and that's part of the problem. But in fact, they also would have impugned the Marxists for their socialization, and that's why they would have taken that word and switched its context to a broader one and attacked everybody. Now, I don't know for sure without reading Rist 1990, page 83, what's being meant there, and even that might be its own rabbit hole, but that's a guess. Ladson Billings tells us it is within this orientation toward the inherent subjectivity of educational research that I've approached this work. Inherent subjectivity of educational research. So now we're moving into into that. That's what culturally relevant or responsive or whichever one we're in the middle of pedagogy is all about. In this next section, I discuss some of the specific perspectives that inform my work. One, the participant, I won't ever remember these numbers, the participant observer role for researchers who are quote, other. Increasingly, researchers have a story to tell about themselves as well as their work. I, too, share a concern for situating myself as a researcher, who I am, what I believe, what experiences I have, I have had all impact what, how, and why I research. What may make these research revelations more problematic for me is my own membership in a marginalized racial cultural group. In other words, critical race theory. Duh. Of course it's here. You have to situate yourself. Now we're in this intersectional positional nonsense. Who you are, what do you believe, what experiences you have, well, that's going to be the experience experiences generated by the structural so-called realities of society. And that's going to impact how, what, and why they research. In other words, there's, while saying, trying to appear to say, I have these blind spots, etc., what she's actually saying is that I have um, kind of this perspective through uh, that identity Marxism explains to where I can can justify what I'm doing. One problem I face, she says, is the presumption of a quote native perspective as I study effective practice for African-American students because Gloria Ladson Billings is black. Um, to this end, questions raised by Narayan seem relevant. Quote, native anthropologists, then, are perceived to be as insiders regardless of their complex backgrounds. The differences between kinds of, quote, native anthropologists are also obviously passed over. Can a person from an impoverished American minority background who, despite all prejudices, manages to get an education and study her own community be equated with a member of the thir- of a third world elite group who, backed by excellent schooling and parental funds, studies anthropology abroad, yet returns home 
for field work among the less privileged. In other words, now it's you can see the game is being played here, right? So if you even come from the third world and you have like this great education because you're rich and you have studied abroad, you've actually been socialized into the wrong system so you don't have an authentic voice. So what does native mean? Well, it means people who have ended up with the so-called authentic voice, the unique voice of color, critical race theory calls it, that's being invoked here. It's not insensitive to suppress the issue of location, acknowledging that a scholar who chooses an institutional base in the third world might have a different engagement with Western-based theories, books, political stances, and technologies of written production. Is a middle-class, white professional researching aspects of her own society also a native anthropologist, which is going to be a problem because they're supposed to have a better view. So they're trying to make sure that only people who have that unique voice, that, you, that, that, that woke perspective, count. This location of myself, we're back to Gloria, Leads and Billings. This location of myself as native can work against me. My work may be perceived as biased or at the least skewed because of my vested interests in the African-American community. Thus, I have attempted to search for theoretical grounding that acknowledges my standpoint and simultaneously forces me to problematize it. The work of Patricia Hill Collins on black feminist thought has been most helpful. Patricia Hill Collins is extremely influential in the creation of what we recognize as critical race theory. In the Black Feminist Thought, she writes in a book that's cited here, titled uh, Black Feminist Thought, as it turns out, is so parallel to critical race theory as to it should be considered an early work of significance within critical race theory. Briefly, Collins' work is based on four propositions. One, concrete experiences as a criterion of meaning. Concrete experiences. Sounds Hegelian. Two, the use of dialogue in assessing knowledge claims. Three, the ethic of caring. And four, the ethic of personal accountability. Below, I briefly describe the context and methodology of my study and then attempt to link each of these propositions to a three-year study I conducted with successful teachers of African-American students. Um, so she's trying to play the same game that the positionality game is always used to play, which is to say, I've critiqued my own biases People would think that I'm biased, but obviously I used critical race theory to make sure that I wasn't biased, and so I'm actually not biased, even though you think that I'm just speaking in these vested interests of the African-American community, blah, 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 even though at the beginning of the paper I literally hijacked Native Hawaiian and, Afri and, and Native American circumstances to make a case about um, that so-called African-American culture, which, you know, excludes all the black people who aren't authentic Voices of color, obviously. Issues of context and methodology, she cites, while it's not possible to fully explicate the content and method of the study in this article, is necessary to provide readers with some sense of both for better continuity. I provided more elaborate explanations of the aspects of the work of the work and other writings, cites a bunch of her own, included here as a truncated explanation of the research context and method. In 1988, I began working as a lone investigator with a group of eight teachers in a small, less than 3,000 students, predominantly African-American, low-income elementary school in Northern California. The teachers were identified through a process of community nomination, which sounds like that there <laughs> sounds like some uh, some inbreeding going on there in a sense. Uh, the uh, study plagued by uh, some kind of a selection bias with African-American parents. In this case, all mothers who attended local churches suggesting who they thought were outstanding teachers. There's only eight of them. Big study. 
The parents' criteria for teaching excellence included being accorded respect by the teacher, student enthusiasm towards school and academic tasks, and student attitudes toward themselves and others. The parents' selections were cross-checked by an independent list of excellent teachers generated by the principals and some teaching colleagues. Maybe less inbreeding than... Maybe it's an okay selection process. Still only eight of them. Principals' criteria for teaching excellence included excellent classroom management skills, student achievement as measured by standardized test scores, and personal observations of teaching practice. Nine teachers' names appeared on both the parents' and the principals' list and were selected to be in the study. One teacher declined to participate because of the time commitment. The teachers were all females. Five were African-American and three were white. The study was composed in four phases. Remember, this is culturally responsive pedagogy. All of it comes from this, this study. The study was composed of four phases. During the first phase, each teacher participated in an ethnographic interview to discuss her background, philosophy of teaching, and ideas about curriculum, classroom management, and parent and teacher, sorry, parent and community involvement. In the second phase of the study, teachers agreed to be observed by me. The agreement meant that the teachers gave me carte blanche to visit the classrooms. These visits were not scheduled beforehand. I visited the classrooms regularly for almost two years, an average of three days a week. During each visit, I took field notes, audio taped the class, and talked with the teacher after the visit, either on-site or by telephone. The third phase of the study, which overlapped the second phase, involved videotaping the teachers. I made decisions about what to videotape as a result of my having become familiar with the teacher's styles and classroom routines. This is all very subjective. The fourth and final phase of the study required that the teachers work together as a research collective or collaborative to view segments of one another's videotapes. Strange to frame it out as being a collective. Uh, in a series of 10 two to three hour meetings, the teachers participated in analysis and interpretation of their own and one another's practice. It was during this phase of the study that formulations about culturally relevant pedagogy that had emerged in the initial interviews were confirmed by teaching practice. My own interest in these issues of teaching excellence for African-American students came as a result of my desire to challenge deficit programs that prevailed in the literature on African-American learners. Partly as a result of my own experiences as a learner, a teacher, and a parent, I was convinced that, despite the literature, there were teachers who were capable of excellent teaching for African-American students. Thus, my work required a paradigmatic shift toward looking in the classrooms of excellent teachers through the reality of those teachers. In this next section, I will discuss, sorry, I discuss how my understanding of my own theoretical grounding connected me with the study. So she has this idea that some people are going to be able to teach students, especially of various ethnic backgrounds, better than others. And so she sets up this study to kind of confirm that. And then the practices that those people are doing that work, she's going to label as culturally relevant teaching practice. And that's what's going to become this roadmap. Concrete experiences, this is a sec subsection, as a criterion of meaning. According to Collins, remember, is a black feminist, a.k.a. proto-critical race theorist, quote, individuals who have lived through the experiences about which they claim to be experts are more believable and credible than those who have merely read and thought about such experiences. Sure, more credible, more believable, not necessarily more right. My work with successful teachers of African-American students began with a search for, quote, expert assessment of good teachers. The experts I chose were parents who had children attending the schools where I planned to conduct the research. The parents were willing to talk openly about who they thought were excellent teachers for their children, citing examples of teachers' respect for them as parents, their children's enthusiasm and changed attitudes toward learning, and improved academics in conjunction with support for the students' home culture. In most cases, the basis... For their assessments were comparative, 
both from the standpoint of having had experiences uh, with many teachers for uh, each individual child and having had several school-age children. Thus, they could talk about how an individual child fared in the different classrooms and how their children collectively performed at specific grade levels with specific teachers. The second area where concrete experiences as a criterion of meaning was evident was with the teachers themselves. The eight teachers who participated in this study had from 12 to 40 years of teaching experience, most of it with African-American students. The reflections on what was important in teaching African-American students were undergirded by their daily teaching experiences. I have no huge qualm there except that she's still focusing on this standpoint uh, perspective, but experience does count for something that's absolutely not in question here. The use of dialogue in assessing knowledge claims. Next subsection. The second criterion suggests that knowledge emerges in dialectical relationships. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Dialectical relationships. Uh-oh. There's our Hegelian Marxist uh, leftist nonsense here. Rather than the voice of one authority, meaning is made as a product of dialogue between and among individuals. Dialogical education and dialogical approaches is what Paolo Freire focuses on. So Freire, though he's not cited here, his presence is felt. Of course, Freire is a Marxist, Marxist education. So it's a dialogue. Meaning is made as a product of dialogue between and among individuals. In the case of my study, dialogue was critical in assessing knowledge claims. Yeah, how else are you going to know anything? Early in the study, each teacher participated in an ethnographic interview. Although I had specific areas I wanted to broach with each teacher, the teacher's own life histories and interests determined how much time was spent on the various areas. In some cases, the interviews reflect a teacher's belief in the salience of his or her family background and education. In other instances, teachers talked more about their pedagogical, philosophical, and political perspectives. Even after I began collecting data via classroom observations, it was the teacher's explanations and clarifications that helped to construct the meaning of what transpired in the classrooms. Additionally, after I collected data from classroom observations and classroom videotaping, the teachers convened as a research collaborative, again that weird word, to examine both their own and one another's pedagogy. In these meetings, meaning was constructed through reciprocal dialogue. Instead of merely accepting Berliner's notions that, quote, experts operate on a level of automaticity and intuition that does not allow for accurate individual critique and interpretation, that is, they cannot explain how they do what they do, together, the teachers were able to make sense of their own and their colleagues' practices. The ongoing dialogue allowed them the opportunity to recreate and rethink their practices. The ethic of caring. I care. Much has been discussed in the feminist literature about women and caring. That's actually in italics. Other feminists have been critical of any essentialized notion of women and suggest that no empirical evidence exists to support the notion that women care in ways different from men or that any such caring informs their scholarship or work. I argue that Collins' use of caring refers not merely to effective connections between and among people, but to the articulation of a greater sense of commitment to what scholarship and or pedagogy can mean in the lives of people. For example, in this study, the teachers were not all demonstrative and affectionate toward the students. Instead, their common thread of caring was their concern for the implications of the, the, the implications their work had on the students' lives, their welfare of the community, and unjust social arrangements. Now here we have a little shoehorning, right? So we're, we're talking about caring, nothing weird. She does this weird thing about the feminism and caring in that regard about men and women. A little bit weird. 
Why do you have to do that? Because otherwise you're writing in this kind of literature the feminists are going to eat you alive. Um, and she says, well, Collins means like caring about how things actually work out. Like that almost like that has to be justified in some way. And so then she says, okay, so what are the common threads of caring? And it's not just about being affectionate or demonstrative to students. What are the common threads? Well, what are the implications that the work has on students' lives? Caring about the outcomes, right? Okay, that's okay. The welfare of the community. Maybe that's part of the job of the teacher. And unjust social arrangements. Whoops, Marxism just got shoehorned right into there. Thus, rather than the idiosyncratic sorry, rather than the idiosyncratic caring for individual students for whom they did seem to care, the teacher spoke of the import of their work for preparing the students for confronting inequitable and undemocratic social structures. So the teachers allegedly, according to this, spoke with no quotes or anything to identify them, spoke about the importance of their work in terms of equity and socialist democracy. Marxism just worked its way right in there, right? The ethic of personal accountability. In this final dimension, Collins addresses the notion that who, italics, makes knowledge claims is as important as what those knowledge claims are. Thus, the idea that individuals can, quote, objectively argue a position, whether they themselves agree with the position, as in public debating, is foreign. Individuals' commitments to ideological and or value positions are important in understanding knowledge claims. This is very postmodern at this point. Postmodern ideas about who you are determining what you consider to be knowledge uh, and how you understand knowledge and how you transmit knowledge is deeply present right here. In this study, the teachers demonstrated this ethic of personal accountability and the kind of pedagogical stands they took. By the way, if I recall correctly, and I would have to look up the, the citation to be 100% sure, I believe it was credited, it is, it is this Patricia Hill Collins in here that's said to have, and we, we quoted this in Cynical Theory, so you can look it up, and it might be somebody else, but at any rate, that Collins had basically reproduced much of Foucault's postmodern philosophy, and then they said that henceforth people should cite her and not Michel Foucault uh, because it would be more intersectional to cite the black woman than the white man. Um, as weird and perverted as that is, that's called citational justice, uh, where you're going to create more justice by giving black women more citations instead of the white men that they uh, kind of plagiarized. Um, but that would be, of course, because Foucault as a privileged white man didn't have the, I guess, native understanding or whatever is in this paper. Okay. In this study, the teachers demonstrated this ethic of personal accountability and the kind of pedagogical stands they took. Several of the teachers spoke of defying administrative mandates in order to do what they believed was right for students. Others gave examples of proactive actions they took to engage in pedagogical practices more consistent with their beliefs and values. For example, one teacher was convinced that the school district's mandated reading program was inconsistent with what she was learning about literacy, teaching, and learning from a critical perspective. So she overrode the school. She's being praised for overriding the school and its instructions, which may have been good or bad, about how to teach reading so that she could incorporate critical pedagogy into the classroom. This is being held up as an example of what culturally relevant teaching looks like. Or culturally responsive. I still can't remember which one this paper is actually about. It, doesn't, it literally doesn't matter. They're the same thing. 
she decided to write a proposal to the school board asking for experimental status for a literacy approach she wanted to use in her classroom. Her proposal was buttressed by current research in literacy, doesn't say what, so it might be just critical theory nonsense, and would not cost the district any more than the proposed program. Remember, Paulo Ferreri's critical pedagogy was heavily based in this way that he wanted to teach reading that I don't think actually worked. Um, her proposal was buttressed by current research and literature and would not cost the district any more than the proposed program. Ultimately, she was granted permission to conduct her experiment, and its success allowed other teachers to attempt it in subsequent years. Oh, how do you define success? Gloria. Although Collins's work provided me with a way to think about my work as a researcher, it did not provide me with a way to theorize about the teacher's practices. Ultimately, it was my responsibility to generate theory as I practiced theory. That's that thing that they do in critical theory where they believe they're flying, that they're, that they're building the plane as they fly it, um, which is a real reference to a real uh, thing that I don't actually know what the reference is to, but I've run into it, remarked about a few times. Ultimately, it was, oh, sorry, I already said that part. As previously mentioned, this work builds on other anthropological and sociolinguistic attempts at a cultural, quote, fit between students' home culture and school culture. However, by situating it in a more critical paradigm, a theory of culturally relevant pedagogy would necessarily propose to do three things. So, culturally relevant pedagogy looks like you're trying to match cultures between teachers and students, but it's going to be situated in a critical paradigm, which Isaac Gotsman tells us is a critical Marxist paradigm, and it's going to do three things. One, students produce students who can achieve academically. Two, produce students who demonstrate cultural competence, which is going to be judged through cultural Marxism, uh, identity Marxism, really. And three, develop students who can both understand and critique the existing social order. In other words, be Marxist activists. The next section discusses... so record scratch back up a cultural a theory of culturally relevant pedagogy would necessarily necessarily propose to do three things produce students who can achieve academically okay produce students who demonstrate cultural competence a lot of packed a lot packed into cultural competence there a lot packed into that because cultural competence if you believe in structural determination determinacy requires you to accept the identity Marxist theories like critical race theory, queer theory, etc., to understand those cultures, quote-unquote, correctly or authentically. And three, most importantly, let me just skip a bunch of that middle stuff and say this part again. A theory of, I'm going to say the thing and then say the other thing, with cutting out the middle, the middle man here. A theory of culturally relevant pedagogy would necessarily propose to develop students who can both understand and critique the existing social order. Let me rephrase that in plainer English. A theory of culturally relevant pedagogy would necessarily develop students into Marxist activists who use identity politics. The next section discusses each of these elements of culturally relevant pedagogy. Culturally relevant pedagogy and student achievement. Much has been written about the school failure of African-American students, and lots are cited here. However, explanations for this failure have varied widely. One often cited explanation situates African-American students' failure on their caste-like minority or involuntary immigrant status. Fun little sidebar here. 
about involuntary immigrant. I don't know what Agbu 1983 talks about. I'm going to tell you a story about W.E.B. Du Bois, who's widely considered to be the father of critical race theory. I want to tell this story so for so long I finally find a place where I can say it. W.E.B. Du Bois, I really, what I want to do is I want to drop this somewhere and just as a proposal and have some critical race theorists flip out on me for saying it. Because it's W.E.B. Du Bois, but a lot of people don't know it. And so in the, I think it's the second chapter of The Souls of Black Folk, which, by the way, believe it or not, I've read. Um, du Bois is going after Lincoln. He is pissed at Lincoln, and he's going after the Freedmen's Bureau and the people that were involved in it. And what we would recognize as a kind of very critical analysis, it's not really critical race theory, but it's like got that that sort of vibe to it. And what he actually says is that what they screwed up and Lincoln, who he calls the long-faced president, and then um, the Freedmen's Bureau, which represented the freed men, the former slaves, what they should have done was rather than simply granting citizenship to all of the millions of freed slaves, they should have used the Freedmen's Bureau to put them through a naturalization process akin to what you see on Ellis Island, and to have the blacks that were formerly slaves earn their citizenship and have to pass a citizenship test before they became citizens. And W.B. Du Bois says that had they done this, we would be in a very different position at his time, late 1800s, early 1900s, writing what became the souls of black folk in 1903. Had they done this, we would have been in a very different position in 1903, he's saying, because you wouldn't have created out of the freed slaves a kind of permanent underclass. You would have naturalize them as citizens by bringing them into the American and integrating them into the American system formally and properly. Thus, would have circumvented this all involuntary immigrant status. But I'm telling you, and I just, I read this, I remember reading this and just laughing in my head, that if you proposed that what should have had to happen was that the freed slaves following the Civil War, rather than being granted citizenship immediately and the right to vote, say 14th and 15th Amendments, rather than being given that, being just handed that, that they would have had to go through an immigration process like immigrants from other countries to be naturalized as U.S. citizens before they were to be considered actual U.S. citizens and gain all the rights uh, therein, or access to all the rights that are secured therein, you would have them blow the absolute F up on you. They would lose their freaking marbles. That that's super oppression, that's cultural domination, da-da-da-da-da. But it was W.E. Du Bois and the Souls of Black Folk who made that argument, not me. And so here you see Gloria Ladson Billings talking about it here in uh, 1995 that maybe that's one of the explanations for underachievement. Just saying. Other explanations posit cultural difference as the reason for this failure and, as previously mentioned, locate student failure in the cultural mismatch between students and the school. It could be actually different cultural values, different outcomes when you apply them in a setting like education, like people whose cultural values are study all the damn time and maximize your opportunity to learn might have higher educational outcomes than people whose cultural dispositions toward education do not include that, just as a, just a wild guess there. Um, Regardless of these failure explanations, little research has been done to examine academic success among African-American students. Notice, by the way, this is in the 95 and is citing a bunch of papers from the late 70s, 80s, and 90s, early 90s. Notice that they never once mentioned the breakdown of the, of the, of the home life. 
They never once mentioned that maybe it's uh, disturbing and more difficult to focus on education or to inculcate the values of success when you're growing up in a home environment without two stable parents and in a, in a neighborhood that's not built around the idea of having stable families that are able to live in a stable environment with one another. Just, again, a suggestion. We could blame that on the Great Society program, which incentivized a lot of that bad behavior that led to a lot of that bad behavior happening because the incentive structures worked or were what they were. But no, we have to blame systemic racism. We can't call the Great Society program systemic racism because the post-civil rights era Democrats did that. Just kind of point out some things. Just a little history. Just a little real talk over here. Regardless of these failure explanations, little research has been done to examine the academic success, or sorry, just academic success, no the, among African-American students. The effective school's literature, many citations here, argued that a group of school-wide correlates were, reliable, were a reliable predictor of student success. The basis for ed judging a school effective in this literature was how far above predicted levels the students performed on standardized achievement tests. Whether or not scholars can agree on the significance of standardized tests, their meaning in the real world serves to rank and characterize both schools and individuals. Thus, wait, that's a whole thing, because the critical theorists are real skeptical of standardized tests, and the reason is because they are much closer to objective than they want. They want subjective measurements where they can put their favorites in positions of success, and the objective measurements are removed so that they can hide their failures and to move to uh, basically forms of corruption and nepotism and uh, cronyism and other, other aspects of, of subjective determination that are not that good. So whether or not scholars can agree on the significance, just undermine that confidence there. Um, thus, teachers in urban schools are compelled to demonstrate that their students can achieve literacy and numeracy, no matter being able to read and do math. No matter how good a fit develops between home and school culture, students must achieve. No theory of pedagogy can escape this reality. Well, that's good. Students in the eight classrooms I observed did achieve. Despite the low ranking of the school district, the teachers were able to help students perform at higher levels than their district counterparts. Well, that's good. In general, compared to students in middle-class communities, the students still lagged behind. That's not so good. But more students in these classrooms were at or above grade level on standardized achievement tests. Fortunately, academic achievement in these classrooms was not limited to standardized assessments. Classroom observation, fortunately not just objective measures, classroom observations revealed a variety of demonstrated student achievements too numerous to list here. Briefly, students demonstrated an ability to read, write, speak, compute, pose, and solve problems at sophisticated levels, that is, pose their own questions about the nature of teacher or text-posed problems, and engage in peer review of problem solutions. Not at all sure what that might mean. Each of the teachers felt that helping the students become academically successful was one of the primary responsibilities. So certainly they can do all this peer review thing, but maybe they can't actually get a good score reading. I don't know. Maybe not. Culturally relevant teaching and cultural competence. Among the scholarship that is examined academically successful African-American students, a disturbing finding has emerged. The students' academic success came at the expense of their cultural and psychosocial well-being. What does that mean? Cultural well-being. What in the world is that? Fordham and Ogbu, Ogbu sorry, identified a phenomenon uh, entitled acting white, where African-American students were academic, who were academically successful were ostracized by their peers. Hmm. Acting white. 
hmm, might have found part of your problem, but we're not allowed to name that problem because acting white is not acting authentically according to critical race theory. So we can't say that other kids accusing academic success stories among black students of acting white and betraying their culture can't say that that's the problem. Hmm. Anyway, what a mystery. Bacon, that's a person, found that among African-American high school students identified as gifted in their elementary grades, only about half were continuing to do well at the high school level. Wonder why? They just said that you got made fun of for acting white if you were academically successful. Huh. A closer examination of the successful students' progress indicated that they were social isolates with neither African-American nor white friends. The students believed that it was necessary for them to stand apart from other African-American students so that teachers would not attribute to them the negative characteristics that they may, that may have uh, attributed to African-American students in general. Didn't she say that five of the teachers out of the eight were black? Weird that they'd be doing that, and weird that you would try to put in on that right after you said that it's their peers, who are way more influential anyway, making fun of them for acting white. That's actually probably at the problem at the basis of the problem and it's the ones who are successful are the ones doesn't say any they, <laughs> closer examined examination of successful students progress indicated they're social isolates with neither african-american nor white friends so something to do with uh the teachers is why okay the dilemma for African-American students becomes one of negotiating the academic demands of school while demonstrating cultural competence. Now all of a sudden you get this idea that cultural competence means not acting white. That multicultural thing I mentioned at the beginning is not good. It doesn't work. Thus, culturally relevant pedagogy must provide a way for students to maintain their cultural integrity while succeeding academically. Because there's, you're admitting, Gloria, that there is a tension between cultural integrity for certain students, namely black ones, and academic success, and you're looking everywhere but at that for your explanation for why education's not going so well. Hmm. One of the teachers in the study used the lyrics of rap songs as a way to teach elements of poetry. Yeah, okay. From the rap lyrics, she went on to a more conventional po she went on to more conventional poetry. Students who were more skilled at creating and improvising raps were encouraged and reinforced. Another teacher worked to channel the peer group leadership of her students into the classroom and school-wide leadership. One of her African-American male students who had experienced multiple suspensions and other school problems before coming to her classroom demonstrated some obvious leadership capabilities. Sorry, just abilities. He could be described as culturally competent in his language and interaction styles, wonder what that means, and demonstrated pride in himself and his cultural heritage, rather than, a, this is in Northern California, by the way, his cultural heritage, rather than attempt to minimize his influence, the teacher encouraged him to run for sixth grade president and mobilize the entire class to organize and help run his campaign. To the young man's surprise, he was elected. His position as president provided the teacher with many opportunities to respond to potential behavior problems. 
and it became a lever for her to control him. Okay. The same teacher made a point of encouraging the African-American males in her classroom to assume the role of academic leaders. Their academic leadership allowed their cultural values and styles to be appreciated and affirmed because these African-American male students were permitted, indeed encouraged, to be themselves in dress, language style, and interaction styles while achieving in school. The other students who regarded them as who regarded them highly because of their popularity were able to see academic engagement as, quote, cool. So you can kind of see what this is supposed to be about. Making learning cool for kids who don't think learning is cool. Maybe they think it's acting white, so now you have to, like, put it into rap songs and make the cool, like, delinquent black kid into the school president to try to control his delinquent behavior, but also to make the other black students look up to him and decide that being successful academically is cool. Okay. Many of the self-described African-centered public schools have focused on this notion of cultural competence. Remember, the kids were culturally competent, whatever that means. To date, little data has been reported on the academic success of students in these programs. However, the work of African-American scholars such as Rattray, Lee, Hilliard, uh, Morell, and Asante, which I believe is um, the Afrocentrism guy who is all, it's probably the, I haven't looked at the bottom, Afrocentrism guy who is Ibram Kendi's weird mentor, has some very weird beliefs. If it is, Malefi Keti Asante, if it's him, you should look him up. He's interesting. Deep ties to uh, Ibram Kendi as well. And others indicates that African-centered education does develop students who maintain cultural competence and demonstrate academic achievement. Although remember that academic achievement lags behind other academic achievement, but at least it's some academic achievement. Culturally relevant teaching and cultural critique. Not only must teachers encourage academic success and cultural competence, they must also help students recognize, understand, and critique current social inequities. So it's not an, it's like, okay, like let's onboard that whole thing. Let's say that you think that what I just read about cultural competence isn't weird, doesn't miss anything important, da-da-da, and it works and it's great, and that's really something should be happening, and that's what culturally responsive or relevant or whatever culturally relevant teaching should be about. Let's just take by fiat that you agree with all that and say, okay, that's where it should probably stop, right? What is the first thing she says next is not, it's not enough. No, not only must teachers encourage academic success and cultural competence, not only must they do all what I just said, they must help students to recognize, understand, and critique current social inequities. They must turn them into activists. It is unambiguous what's here. They must turn them into critical identity Marxist activists. It is unambiguous what culturally relevant teaching is. And that means it's going to, if you're going to recognize, understand, and critique current social inequities relevant to race, then critical race theory is going to be part of it. This notion presumes that teachers themselves recognize social inequities and their causes, a.k.a. that they are competent in critical race theory or the other critical theories of identity. However, teacher educators uh, herself is one of them cited, but I don't see any names that leap out as oh no's, have demonstrated that many prospective teachers not only lack these understandings, but reject information regarding social inequity. In other words, they're not freaking Marxists. This suggests that more work on recruiting particular kinds of students into teaching must be done. Why do you want to have subjective measurements? So you can recruit the kind of kids who are going to grow up to become the Marxists who are going to become the teachers. Generational war. Although we are fortunate to have models for this kind of cultural critique emanating from the work of civil rights workers here in the United States, um, I don't know those names, and in the international work of Freire, who is a Marxist, 
that has been incorporated into the critical and feminist work currently done, being done by numerous scholars, including Ellsworth, Giroux, Bell Hooks, Lather, and McLaren. Should look that guy up. Teachers who meet this uh, meet the cultural critique criteria must be engaged in critical pedagogy. Those are all critical pedagogists, by the way. This is all that we must bring critical Marxism into education if we're actually going to have culturally relevant pedagogy. It is part and parcel. And that means if it's going to be about race, it's going to be critical race theory. Don't let them lie to you. So let me read that part again. Teachers who meet the cultural critique criteria must be engaged in a critical pedagogy, which is, as defined by Giroux and another guy, Simon, a deliberate attempt to influence how and what knowledge and identities are produced within and among particular sets of social relations. Marxism, Marxism, Marxism. It can be understood as a practice through which people are incited to acquire particular a particular, quote, moral character. In other words, they are going to groom your kids, program your kids into a morality of, if we can call it that, of Marxism as both a political and practical activity. Political. This is your kids. It attempts to influence the occurrence and qualities of experiences. So Ladson Billings has to say about it this. Thus, the teachers in this study were not reluctant to identify political underpinnings of the student's community and social world. One teacher worked with her students to identify poorly utilized space in the community, examine heretofore inaccessible archival records about the early history of the community, plan alternative uses for va a vacant shopping mall, and write urban plans, which they presented before the city council. Activism. In a description of similar political activity, a class of African-American middle, middle school students in Dallas identified the problem of their schools being surrounded by liquor stores. Zoning regulations in the city made some areas dry while the student school was in a wet area. The students identified the fact that the schools were serving white, upper-middle-class students were located in dry areas while schools in poor communities were in wet areas. The students, assisted by their teacher, planned a strategy for exposing this inequity. By using mathematics, literacy, social, and political skills, the students were able to prove their points with reports, editorials, charts, maps, and graphs. In both of these examples, teachers allowed students to use their community circumstances as official knowledge. Okay, so some of this I was kind of on board with, like, that's kind of cool. I bet it got ascribed to racism. Less cool. In both of these examples, teachers allow students to use their community circumstances as official knowledge, citing Michael Apple, Marxist educator. Huh. Their pedagogy and the students' learning became a form of cultural critique. In other words, teaching kids to be Marxist activists, using identity politics as the tool. Theoretical underpinnings of culturally relevant pedagogy, she's going to tell us about now. As I looked and listened to exemplary teachers of African-American students, I began to develop a grounded theory of culturally relevant pedagogy. Again, you can look up what grounded theory is for yourself. That's not what I'm doing here today. It's a qualitative research method, though, and I made fun of it in, my, uh, in the Grieving Studies Affair papers. The teachers in this study met the aforementioned criteria of helping their students to be academically successful, culturally competent, and socio-politically critical. However, 
The ways in which they met these criteria seemed to differ markedly on the surface. Some teachers seemed more structured or rigid in their pedagogy. Others seemed to adopt more progressive teaching strategies. What theoretical perspectives held them together and allowed them to meet the criteria of culturally relevant teaching, which, by the way, remembers, remember, requires you to make social activists out of your kids using critical theory as a tool. In other words, turning them into Marxist activists. One of the places I began to look for these commonalities was in teachers' beliefs and ideologies. Lipman, 1993, has suggested that despite massive attempts at school reform and restructuring, teacher ideologies and beliefs often remain unchanged, particularly toward African American children and their intellectual potential. Thus, so now there's their not so subtle accusation of racism. Thus, in the analysis of the teacher interviews, classroom observations, and group analysis of videotape segments of their teaching, I was able to do some broad propositions or characteristics that serve as theoretical underpinnings of critical relevant pedagogy, culturally, sorry, relevant pedagogy. I approach the following propositions tentatively to avoid an essentialized and or dichotomized notion of the pedagogy of excellent teachers. What I propose represents a range or continuum of teaching behaviors, not fixed or rigid behaviors that teachers must adhere to in order to merit the designation, quote, culturally relevant. The need for these theoretical understandings uh, may be, uh, sorry, may be more academic than pragmatic. The teachers themselves feel no need to name their practice culturally relevant. No kidding. However, as a researcher and teacher educator, I am compelled to try to make this practice more accessible, particularly for those prospective teachers who do not share the cultural knowledge, experiences, or understandings of their students. The three broad propositions that have emerged from this research center around the following. We can't center around something, by the way. You can center upon something. You can revolve around. That's just one of those style things that got drilled into my head in my high school English class. But anyway. First, the conceptions of self and others held by culturally relevant teachers. Second, the manner in which social relations are structured by culturally relevant teachers. And third, the conceptions of knowledge held by culturally relevant teachers. So conceptions of knowledge means we're going to come at this from postmodernism. Social relations means we're going to come at this by Marxism. Conception of self and others. The, socio the sociology of teaching literature suggests that despite the increasing professionalization of teaching, the status of teaching as a profession continues to decline. How about that. How about that? The status of teaching keeps going down the more formal they make it in terms of their weird professional practices. And this is by the 90s where the Marxism is already working its way in. Shocker. Make it more and more bureaucratic and people don't think of it as highly. Shocker. The feeling of like, remember when it was less bureaucratic is what they're saying and parents in the society regarded teachers in a more positive light. Wow. The feeling of low status is exacerbated when teachers work with what they perceive to be low-status students. However, I, um, as I acted as a participa participant observer in the classrooms of exemplary teachers of African-American students, a participant observer, huh, so did you bother the classrooms that you're observing to learn how they work? That seems like good research methodology. Both what they said and did challenged this notion. In brief, the teachers believed that all the... Uh, believe that all the students were capable of academic success. Good. Saw their pedagogy as art, unpredictable, always in the process of becoming. Okay, hang on. Saw their pedagogy as art. Okay, 
fine. So there's some fluidity in how you're going to do it. That's kind of cool. Unpredictable. Not quite sure what you're going to have to do. You're going to adjust to the given circumstances. Okay. Always in the process of becoming sounds so Hegelian. Hmm. Where the point is that nothing is as it is. It's always becoming something perfect in the end, if it's sufficiently critical. Uh, next point, saw themselves as members of the community. Uh-oh. But probably good. Depends on how that's meant. Because uh, community could mean kind of two things. It could be that you like what we actually mean by community, or it could mean the, uh, kind of a collectivist view of community. And uh, saw teaching as a way to get back to the community. That's probably good. And then this one. Believed in a Freirian notion of teaching as mining or pulling knowledge out. So in other words, they were approaching this through Apollo, Freire-based uh, approach to teaching rather than, so the teaching as mining rather than teaching as banking, which is the, the separation that Freire gives. And his models are the banking model of education where teachers deposit knowledge into the students and the dialogical model where their students and teachers are seen largely as equals and they engage in dialogue and through dialogue the teachers are mining out of the students things that they already know which is probably not actually like the kids don't go in there knowing calculus turns out the students demonstrated their commitment to these conceptions of self and others in a consistent and deliberate manner but they also use Marxism in a consistent and deliberate manner in their teaching okay students were not permitted to choose failure in their classrooms they cajoled, nagged, pestered, and bribed the students to work at high intellectual levels. Absent from their, dis their discourse about students was the language of lacking. That's in quotes. Students were never referred to as being from a single-parent household, being on AFDC, which is welfare, or needing psychological evaluation. Instead, teachers talked about their own shortcomings and limitations in ways they needed to change to ensure student success very Paulo Freire. And also very, let's blame the teacher and the system for something else. As I observed them teach, I witnessed spontaneity and energy that came from experience and their willingness to be risk takers. Okay, can get behind that. In the midst of a lesson, one teacher seemingly bewildered by her students' expressed belief that every princess had long blonde hair, uh-oh, here comes some critical race theory, swiftly went to her bookshelf, pulled down an African folktale about a princess, and shared the story with the students to challenge their assertion. So that was using a counter-story to disrupt an entrenched hegemonic view that, in, that re would be reinscribing white supremacy. In other words, critical race theory. QED. In our conference afterwards, she commented, quote, I didn't plan to insert the book, but I just couldn't let them go on thinking that only blonde-haired white women were eligible for royalty. I know where they got those ideas, but I have a responsibility to contradict some of that. The consequences of that kind of thinking are more devastating for our children, in italics on the hour, which is not clear what that necessarily means, but it is the uh, use of critical race theory to uh, interrupt this thing that, of course, isn't strictly true that only blonde white women get to be princesses. The teachers made conscious decisions to be part of the community from which their students come. Generally, probably good. Three of the eight teachers in this study live in the school community. The others made deliberate efforts to come to the community for good services and leisure activities, demonstrating their belief in the community as an important and worthwhile place in both their lives and the lives of their students. Okay, that, that should be happening. That's good. 
The final example I present here is an elaboration of a point made earlier. It reflects the teacher's attempts to support and instill community pride in the students. One teacher used the community as the basis of her curriculum. Her students searched the county historical archives, interviewed long-term residents, constructed and administered surveys and a questionnaire, and invited and listened to guest speakers to get a sense of the historical development of their community. The ultimate goal was to develop a land-use proposal for an abandoned shopping center that was a magnet for illegal drug use and other dangerous activities. The project ended with the students making a presentation before the city council and urban planning commission. One of the students remarked to me, this community is not such a bad place. There are a lot of good things that happened here, and some of that is still going on. The teacher told me that she was concerned that too many of the students believed that their only option for success involved moving out of the community rather than participating in its reclamation. So there are Ferrarian elements there where that could get taken awry, but it's also cool as given. I'm not going to criticize just everything just to criticize it, obviously. Social relations. This is probably going to get real because that's Marxism. Much has been written about classroom social interactions. Perhaps the strength of some of the research in this area is evidenced by its impact on classroom practices. For example, teachers throughout the nation have either heard of or implemented various forms of cooperative learning. Uh-oh. Cross-age, multi-age, and heterogeneous ability groupings. While these classroom arrangements may be designed to improve student achievement, culturally relevant teachers consciously create social interactions to help them meet the three previously mentioned criteria of academic success, cultural competence, and critical consciousness. Straight-up Marxist. Briefly, the teachers maintain fluid student-teacher relationships. That could... That's probably pretty Freyrian and not necessarily great, but not terrible, depending on how it's meant. Demonstrate a connectedness with all the students. Develop a community of learners. Encourage students to learn collaboratively and be responsible for another. That's collectivism. That's what we see in the California, Oregon, and Washington ethnic studies curriculum, where, for instance, math is not to be individual anymore, but collective. In these teachers' classrooms, the teacher-student relationships are equitable and reciprocal. Now we're getting deep into Freire, and it's hard without having read the Pedagogy of the Oppressed for you to understand what's going on here. In Freire's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he makes a big deal about how there shouldn't be a power dynamic between teachers and students. The teachers and students, because that reproduces domination and oppression. So what there should be are teacher students and student teachers who are roughly equal. So the teachers learn more from their students than they teach for example, is the kind of common refrain from there. So here the teacher-student relationships are equitable and reciprocal. So what we're seeing is an elevation of students to be on par with teachers. Now, maybe in adult education there's something okay about that because it's adult education, and a lot of what Freire was pointing at was, in fact, adult education, not to give him any credit because he made a disaster. But children actually need to learn to respect authority and boundaries, and they need that structure that comes from authority figures. And a teacher turns out to be one of those things, so breaking that relationship there is actually developmentally inappropriate, and it's not healthy. But they would say, even in what I just said, that, te that students need to learn to uh, you know, deal with authority and that they respond to structure, that both of those are just hegemonic views that I'm impressing. I'm trying to indoctrinate students by, uh, to, to listen to authority, to be compliant, etc. But I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's developmentally appropriate, which is just a fact of nature that children do better when there's authority and, uh, boundaries and structure in which they can work and they can test the edges of that and they can move within it. So this is some crap equitable reciprocal relationships all of the and you think that's not what she means really 
all of the teachers gave students opportunities to act as teachers. In one class, the teacher regularly sat at a student's desk while the student stood at the front of the room and explained a concept or some aspect of student culture. So they they make the students become teachers, and the teachers teach about their culture, while the teacher humiliates herself, I suppose, because they're all female, and sits in a student desk and listens. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that, but there is, that is the breakdown of the power dynamic. And that power dynamic isn't really a power dynamic. It's a structure of authority and hierarchy that is actually developmentally appropriate through even, even up into high school for the most part for these kids, uh, to be growing up in. And then the, the, what are the, what are the kids' authorities on? Their culture, student culture. Another teacher highlighted the ex- expertise of various students and required other students to consult those students before coming to her for help. Let me go back to the previous one because it was very, just to mention, it was very Paulo Freire. This is, now you're recruiting the other students, you're turning, this is going to be the collectivism thing, you're recruiting other students to be basically de facto teacher's assistants, uh, to, add, you know, Consult other students before coming to her for help. Did you ask Jamal how to do those math problems? Make sure you check with Latisha, Latisha sorry, before you turn in your reading. Because she acknowledged a wide range of expertise, the individual students were not isolated from their peers as teachers' pets, because that's the only thing that that would happen. Instead, all of the students were made aware that they were expected to excel at something and that the teacher would call on them to share that expertise with classmates. Now, that could be an excellent opportunity for for helping one another, etc., and even for teaching about the law of comparative advantage and some other things. But it can also be used to push collectivism. I wonder which one Gloria wants to do. The culturally relevant teachers encouraged a community of learners, a community of learners rather than competitive individual achievement. Aha, we know which one she's going to do collectivism. By demanding a higher level of academic success for the entire class, individual success did not suffer. However, rather than lifting up individuals and perhaps contributing to feelings of peer alienation, the teacher made it clear that they were working with smart classes. For many of the students, this identification with academic success was a new experience. Quote, Calvin was a bad student last year, said one student, and that was last year, replied the teacher, as she designated Calvin to lead a, a discussion group. Another example of, of this community of learners was exemplified by a teacher who herself was a graduate student. She made a conscious decision to share what she was learning with her sixth graders. Every Friday after her Thursday evening class, the students queried her about what she learned. So she's telling her students what she's learning as a grad student in grad school. Um, I guess to illustrate that she also is a student as well, and to break down that barrier. Uh, we'll get more into that story in a second, but we'll we'll pause for a second to go backwards to um, the previous example where Calvin was a bad student, and that was last year. So what you see here then is something that, and this is going to be a lot of a lot of what happens with this kind of stuff is something so ambiguous, and this makes it so hard to criticize and pull out of schools that it could easily be good teaching practice or could easily be used to warp the kids into collectivism, which is indoctrination and programming. And which one is it? Well, in any given instance, it's so hard to tell that you almost can't make blanket pronouncements to say which one it is. Now we go back to our grad student. A demonstration of the student's understanding of what she she was learning occurred during the principal's observation of her teaching. A few minutes into a discussion where students were required, this is a beautiful little story. By the way, this whole paper, have you noticed the storytelling? 
eight teachers, let's tell a bunch of stories, so now we're going to make a model for all of education based off of that. A few minutes into a discussion where students were required to come up with questions they wanted answered about the book they were reading, a young man seated at the table near the rear of the classroom marked with seeming disgust, quote, we're never going to learn anything if y'all don't stop asking all of these low-level questions. His comment was evidence of the fact that the teacher had shared Bloom's Taxonomy of Educational Objectives, 1956, with the class. Now, a lot of all of this woke nonsense, and I'm not an expert on Bloom's Taxonomy yet, a lot of this woke nonsense I'm told by people who know it better than I do um, is just a rehashing of this hot mess of Bloom's Taxonomy of Educational Objectives. It's apparently an important book that sometime I should probably go back to, but I don't want to be the education guy. Everybody, you do it. At another time, two African-American boys were arguing over a notebook. Quote, what seems to be the problem, asked the teacher. He's got my metacognitive journal, replied one of the boys. Metacognitive journal? By using the language of the teacher's graduate class, the students demonstrated their ability to assimilate her language with their own experiences. This is the breaking down of the, the boundary between student and teacher uh, that Freire praises. But again, it could be done in a cute way or whatever, where maybe it's even beneficial and productive. Very difficult to tell where it's being okay and where it's not being okay when you start breaking down relationships and doing some things that are contextually uh, appropriate and sometimes contextually inappropriate. Metacognitive journal, though, like sixth graders are talking about a metacognitive journal, like something weird. Probably that is not good. Probably you're indoctrinating them with crap you're picking up in your Marxist teacher college graduate class. To solidify the social relationships in their classes, the teachers encourage the students to learn collaboratively, teach each other, and be responsible for the academic success of others. To be responsible for the academic success of others? What is this, communism? No, it is. These collaborative arrangements were not necessarily structured like those of cooperative learning. Instead, the teachers used a combination of formal and informal peer collaborations. One teacher used a buddy system where each student was paired with another. The buddies checked each other's homework and class assignments. Buddies quizzed each other for tests, and if one buddy was absent, it was the responsibility of the other to call and see why and to help with makeup work. Okay. The teachers used this ethos of reciprocity and mutuality to insist that one person's success was the success of all and one person's failure was the failure of all. Does that sound like communism? These feelings were exemplified by the teacher who insisted, quote, we are a family. We have to care for one another as if our very survival depended on it. Actually, it does. So here's one of these stupid contextual things. Yes, we are a mutually dependent species. We are interdependent, I should say, mutually interdependent species. So in a sense, that's kind of true. But in a much more important sense, we got a lot of broken shit going on right there. We are a family in the classroom. You start thinking in terms of what we're seeing now in 2022, which is, what, 27 years after this paper was written, and you see the way that the Marxists are trying to replace, use the teaching classroom to replace the family. They want to take the kids out of the family. We're seeing this on social media, the very various videos, reading it and the stuff that they're putting out. This is being exposed far and wide. We have political candidates talking about it, uh, you know, like that the parents have no role, then the, you know, they don't have a right about the curriculum and whatever. And so here we are a family, maybe something, depending on the context in which it's delivered, and this is quote is put in here out of context, after a bunch of crap about collectivism, which is the wrong context, but we are a family. No, you're not. You're a classroom. We have to care for one another as if our very survival depended on it. Well, that's some histrionic bullshit 
except if in a very narrow context, then saying actually it does. Well, what do you mean by our very survival? Do you mean that we are a mutually interdependent species? Well, that's one thing. Maybe we should, maybe you should clarify. But do you mean it in this collectivist nonsense, which you've just pr- propositioned? That's communism. And it's actually histrionic. Our very survival, your, your very survival does not depend for most people on whether or not somebody else is doing their, their stuff. Collectivism is not good. Conceptions of knowledge. This is going to get all postmodern and critical big time. A third proposition that emerged from the study was one that indicated how the teachers thought about knowledge, the curriculum or content they taught, and the assessment of that knowledge. Once again, I will summarize their conceptions or beliefs about knowledge. Knowledge is not static. It is shared, recycled, and constructed. Hello, postmodernism. Knowledge must be viewed critically. Hello, neo-Marxism. Teachers must be passionate about knowledge and learning. Okay. Teachers must scaffold or build bridges to to facilitate learning. Now, I don't know specifically in education what scaffolding means, so that might be good or bad, but I do agree that you have to build bridges between where you are and where the kids are or the students are to facilitate learning. That's actually true. I taught for a number of years. You do actually have to figure out how to connect and build. Okay, fine, whatever, but maybe not. Depends on what's meant by scaffolding, which is in italics and is a word that I'm not familiar with in specificity. And given that I know that every woke word contains an agenda, I don't know if one's hidden here because I don't know if that's a woke word or not. Assessment must be multifaceted, incorporating multiple forms of excellence. Uh Uh-oh. That means subjective measures of of determining if they're doing it well so they can be good at their critical stuff. For the teachers in this study, knowledge was about doing. Well, that's strange. The students listened and learned from one another as well as the teacher. Early in the school year, one teacher asked the students to identify one area in which they believed they had expertise. She then compiled a list of classroom experts for distribution to the class. Later, she developed a calendar and asked students to to select a date they would like to make a presentation in their area of expertise. When students made their presentations, their knowledge and expertise was a given. Yeah, they said they're an expert, so just believe them, right? The classmates were expected to be an attentive audience and to take seriously the knowledge that was being shared by taking notes and or asking relevant questions. Maybe now is a good time to talk about my friend or When I was a kid, this kid I knew wasn't really my friend named Rusty. We'll come back to Rusty. Let me finish the paragraph. The variety of topics the students offered offered included rap music. Funny they put that first. Basketball, gospel singing, cooking, hair braiding, and babysitting. Other students listed more school-like areas of expertise, such as reading, writing, and mathematics. However, all students were required to share their expertise. So let's back up here. So Classmates were expected to, so their, their knowledge and expertise was a given. Their classmates were expected to be an attentive audience and to take seriously the knowledge that was being shared by taking notes and uh, asking relevant questions. Now, when I was a kid, there was this other kid, not in my neighborhood, but in my friend's neighborhood named Rusty. And I don't know what happened to Rusty, but Rusty was a liar. Rusty made up some tall tales. Rusty came over one time. We were sitting there hanging out or whatever. It was back in the days when MTV was cool and it had uh, music on music videos. You remember music videos? They were on TV, on MTV way back in the day. You, you Young people wouldn't know that because it's never been in your lifetime. In fact, it was basically all MTV showed. And so Rusty came over and there was a song by Aerosmith. And it was playing in the music video rather famously. And all the teenage boys really loved it. Featured this cool scene where there's a 
guy riding a motorcycle in Alicia Silverstone is on the motorcycle with him and they start making out while they're on the motorcycle and making out with Alicia Silverstone was something a lot of the teenage boys want to do. And Rusty walked in like right during this iconic scene. He's wearing a women's shirt and some kind of a raincoat and obviously a large amount of women's perfume, which means he had pilfered his mom's closet to put some kind of thing together. He wasn't like a crossdresser or any of that, but he looks at this TV I'm assuming Rusty was a fairly poor child, but I don't know this. And he sees the motorcycle and the making out with Alicia Silverstone. And he says, because this is his expertise, I've done that. He's like 10, 11, something like that. I've done that. Tastes like chicken. That's what he said. So I'm going to take notes on this because Rusty's knowledge and expertise is a given. Rusty has a large number of stories. He told us about how he is a, he had a, a large he would have told the teacher, I can tell you, it wouldn't have been about Lacey Silverstone. Well, it could have been anything. There's a good chance he would have said that his expertise was in fishing. And he explained that we because the neighborhood had access to the lake, and he claimed, he said, you know what, we came over one day and he said, Hey, down at that pier the other day, you know what happened? Somebody caught a twelve pound largemouth bass. You know who caught it? Me. And we looked at him like, that's not true. There are not that many 12-pound largemouth bass in this lake. And you probably didn't catch one because the biggest one any of us ever caught was like three or four pounds. And that was huge for us. And so he says he caught a 12-pound one. And we look at him skeptically and he freezes. He says, actually, I didn't catch it. My dad did. And then he says, and actually, it wasn't one bass. It was two bass. One was six pounds. One was seven. And... We already got him up on the wall, and what you won't believe is that one of those bass, when we pulled it out of the out of the water, was wearing a gold chain around its neck, and it's hanging on our on our wall on the fish that was tax, uh, that we'd already had taxidermied, and it was from yesterday. So taxidermy takes longer than that. That didn't happen. The fish was definitely fish don't have necks. Definitely wasn't wearing a gold chain. The one bass that was twelve pounds became two bass that were six and seven. None of this makes any fucking sense. So. Rusty could tell us about fishing, and we would have to acknowledge his knowledge and expertise. This is nonsense. This is utter nonsense. It's Freirian nonsense where now we have to take this into account. Yada, yada, yada. So, nonsense. Another example of the teacher's conceptions of knowledge was de- was demonstrated in the critical stance the teachers took toward the school curriculum. Oh, good. Just undermine the school curriculum, teachers, in front of your students. That'll be good. Although cognizant of the need to teach certain things because of a district-wide testing policy, well, that's the only reason, like, well, math, the teachers helped their students engage in a variety of forms of critical analyses, teaching them to be freaking Marxists. For one teacher, this meant the critique of the social studies textbooks that were under consideration by state by a state evaluation panel, probably going to accuse them of being racist. For two of the other teachers, critique came in the form of resistance to district-approved teaching materials. Both, that's so great that that's happening, that they're doing this in front of their, with their students and in front of their students. Both of these teachers showed the students what it was they were supposed to be using along with what they were going to use and why. They trust. They both trusted the students with this information and enlisted them as allies against the school district's policies. So they incorporated them into their own stupid activism and turned them into activists, and while giving them knowledge or giving them not knowledge, sorry, information that is outside of the appropriate relationship and their job. Because critical theorists, of course, are superiority complexes or Marxists have a superiority complex and they don't believe that the rules should apply to them. 
great that they're doing that with their students. And I'm sure that that went really well for their educational quality there. A final example in this category concerns the teacher's use of complex assessment strategies. Several of the teachers actively fought the student's right answer approach to school tasks without putting the students down. Hmm. So getting the right answer, the teachers actively fought the student's right answer approach to school tasks without putting the students down. They provided them with the problems and situations and helped the students to say aloud the kinds of questions they had in their minds, but had been taught to suppress in most other, most other classrooms. For one teacher, it was the simple requiring of students to always be prepared to ask why. Thus, when she posed a mathematical word problem, the first question usually went something like this. Why are we interested in knowing this? Or someone would simply ask, why are we doing this problem? The teacher's response was sometimes another question. Who thinks they can respond to that question? At other times, the teacher would offer an explanation and then ask, are you satisfied with the answer? If a student said yes, she might say, you shouldn't be. Just because I'm the teacher doesn't mean I'm always right. The teacher was care Are you satisfied with the answer? The teacher was careful to help students to understand the difference between an intellectual challenge and a challenge to the authority of their parents. Thus, as the students were affirmed in their ability to code switch or move with facility in the language between African American language and a standard form of English, what? They were, they were supported in the attempts at role switching between school and home. Another teacher helped her students to choose both the standards by which they were to be evaluated and the pieces of evidence they wanted to use as proof of their mastery of particular concepts and skills. None of the teachers... Hold on. Another teacher helped her students to choose both the standards by which they were to be evaluated and the pieces of evidence they wanted to use as proof of their mastery of particular concepts and skills. Yeah, okay. The students write the test. Mick World! None of, the none of the teachers or students seemed to have test anxiety about the school district standardized tests. Instead, they viewed the tests as, a necessary, as necessary irritations, took them, scored better than their age mates at their school, and quickly returned to the rhythm of learning in their classroom. Conclusion. So just now that we've done this, other than the fact that it shuttled in a whole lot of Marxism and talked about rap and basketball, did anybody have the slightest idea what culturally relevant teaching is yet? No, you don't. But we're at the conclusion to the paper now. I began this, this article arguing for a theory of culturally relevant pedagogy. I also suggested that the tensions that surround my position as a native in the research field force me to face the theoretical and philosophical biases I bring to the work, to my work in over and explicit ways. Now, you never actually did that. You just quoted Patricia Collins and said you were going to do it and then actually never did it. Thus, I situated my work in the context of black feminist thought. So you gave some paragraphs about what Patricia Hill Collins says. And then you, so you did the opposite of addressing your biases because you're a freaking black feminist. I suggested that the, uh, that culturally relevant teaching must meet three criteria. So we can learn what culturally relevant uh, pedagogy or teaching is an ability to develop students academically, a willingness to nurture and support cultural competence, which is a multicultural nonsense, and the development of a socio-political and critical consciousness. Yikes. Marxists. Next, I argued that culturally relevant teaching is distinguishable by three broad propositions or conceptions regarding self and other, social relations, and knowledge. With this theoretical perspective, I attempted to broaden notions of pedagogy beyond strictly psychological models. 
I have also argued that earlier sociolinguistic explanations have failed to include the larger social and cultural context of students, and the cultural uh, ecologists have failed to explain student success. I, pred I predicated the need for a culturally relevant theoretical practice on the growing disparity between the racial, ethnic, and cultural characteristics of teachers and students, along with the continued academic failure of African American, Native American, and Latino students. Have Latino students been mentioned almost at all before this? Although I agree with Haberman's assertion from 1991 that the, that teacher educators are unlikely to, to let me just start that sentence over. Although I agree with Haberman's 1991 assertion that teacher educators are unlikely to make much of a difference in the preparation of teachers to work with students in urban poverty unless they are able to recruit quote better teacher candidates, I still believe that researchers are obligated to re-educate the candidates we currently attract toward a more expansive view of pedagogy. So she's saying that teacher colleges in 1995 need to re-educate potential teachers into what she's talking about, which includes Marxism. This can be accomplished partly by helping prospective teachers understand culture, their own and others, and the ways it functions in education. Rather than add-on versions of multicultural education or human relations courses that serve to exoticize diverse students as, quote, other, a culturally relevant pedagogy is designed to problematize teaching and encourage teachers to ask about the nature of the student-teacher relationship, the curriculum, schooling, and society. In other words, it's to bring, it's unfortunate that we haven't done Paulo Freire's pedagogy the oppressed yet, because you'd know what this is talking about, but bring Paulo Freire's pedag critical pedagogy into this whole school system. In other words, to turn our school system into his crackpot Marxist approach to education so that you can problematize student-teacher relationships, the curriculum, schooling, and society. Maybe you can reimagine something afterwards. The study, this study, sorry, represents a beginning look at the ways that teachers might systematically include student culture in the classroom as authorized or official knowledge. Hello, postmodernism. Is also a way to encourage praxis as an important aspect of research. Hello, Marxism. This kind of research needs to continue in order to support new conceptions of collaboration between teachers and researchers, practitioners, and theoreticians. Practice and theory, practice and theory, practice and theory. Marxism. Remember that the point for Marx is that practice and theory, following Hegel actually, is that the practical idea and the theoretical idea are going to fuse into the absolute idea when the, when the, when the, when the utopia is reached at the end of history. So practitioners and theoreticians are going to be brought in to, to support new conceptions of collaborations between them. Marxism. We need research, this is the dialectical thing she mentioned early on, and we just kind of glazed over it. We need research that proposes alternate models of pedagogy, coupled with exemplars of successful pedagogues. Most importantly, we need to be willing to look for exemplary practice in those classrooms and communities that too many of us are ready to dismiss, to dismiss as incapable of producing excellence. The implication of continuing this kind of work means that research grounded in the practice of exemplary teachers will form a significant part of the knowledge base which, uh, on which we should build teacher preparation. It means that, te that the research community will have to be willing to listen and to heed the, quote, wisdom of practice 
of these excellent practitioners. Additionally, we will need to consider methodologies that present more robust portraits of teaching. Meaningful combinations of quantitative and qualitative inquiries must be employed to help us understand the deeply textured, multi-layered enterprise of teaching. So we're going to water down what research means. We're going to get away from rigorous objective standards. We're going to get away from uh, objectively measuring the results of teaching interventions. We're going to get more and more kind of fuzzy, um, more humanities-oriented, less objective-oriented. And we're going to turn uh, education into a mismatch of bullshit. I presume that the work I've been doing raises more questions than it answers. Yeah, because you're, other than saying that it's, you never said how it's going to produce academic excellence. So it was one of your key points. You never actually defined very clearly what you mean by cultural competence, but it seems to mean black people acting black. Um, but it'd be good if you actually clarified that. And then you decided to bring in Marxism into our education, like that's super important and good. And you're just going to glaze over it with a lot of jargon. Yeah, lots of questions need to be asked right here. Like, how did this happen? Why are you important? Why are you still writing educational policy 27 years after you did this atrocity uh, for states like Virginia? Why are you still a thing? That's a good question. A common question asked by practitioners is, isn't what you describe just good teaching? Did you read the Marxism part? Jesus. Anyway, I digress. And while I do not deny that it is good teaching, because I said, I'll, I'll, I'll just give myself credit. I said a lot of that could be good teaching if it's contextually correct, but then we see her dragging it into collectivism uh, under this collaboration stuff, blah, 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 and all, all this critical stuff and the Marxism stuff uh, and the destruction of the the hierarchical boundary between teacher and student, and that's thus the role of authority and the, all these other pieces that are super important. Um, isn't this good teaching? And while I do not deny that it is good teaching, I pose a counter question. Why does so little of it seem to occur in classrooms populated by African-American students? Maybe because most teachers aren't Marxists, or at least they weren't in 1995 yet. Another question that arises, and then let's just bring up the race part. Oh, if this if bringing critical consciousness to the students is a key thing, it's such great teaching, why doesn't it happen where the black students are? Because racism, that's what she's saying there, like literally. Another question that arises is whether or not this pedagogy is so idiosyncratic that only, quote, certain teachers can engage in it. I would argue that the diversity of these teachers and the variety of teaching strategies they employed challenged that notion. There were five black and th three whites, who all had to demonstrate certain competencies, which included this kind of critical approach to education. Mm -hmm. Eight. 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 That's it. Eight teachers. The common feature they shared was a classroom practice grounded in what they believed about the educability of the students. Unfortunately, this raises troubling thoughts about those teachers who are not successful. Does it? Not necessarily. But we cannot assume that they do not believe that some students are incapable or unworthy of being educated. That is a naked accusation of racism of teachers who aren't doing what you're saying. Yeah, unfortunately, this raises troubling thoughts about those teachers who are not successful, but we cannot, but I, don't worry, we've raised that, we've, we've, we've made the remark, but don't worry, I'm going to say this, but we cannot assume that they do not believe that some students are incapable or unworthy of being educated. We can't assume that, but, you know, I mentioned it. The reasons for their lack of success are far too complex for this discussion, so we'll just mention that they might be fucking racists and then not talk about any other ones. God, these people are evil. 
Ultimately, my responsibility as a teacher educator, who works primarily with young middle-class white women, is to provide them with the examples of culturally relevant teaching in both theory and practice. My responsibility as a researcher is to continue to inquire to, in order to move toward a theory of culturally relevant pedagogy. So, yet again, do you really understand what culturally relevant pedagogy is after we read one of the landmark papers in it? We've now concluded this wonderful piece of work by Gloria Ladson Billings, who I just remarked, is still writing educational policy. She was one of the chief authors in Ed Equity Virginia last year for the Department of Education in Virginia. Um, and the only thing that's clear that I got out of this is that it's situated within multi multicultural education, which is a failure, that it somehow has to incorporate having students teach the teachers about their culture so that they can diversify education culturally so that they can maybe achieve higher success, uh, that it needs to veer toward collectivism and that it must be, it must encourage cultural competence, which seems to be, and if it's done through critical race theory, is the uh, expression of the authentic culture, so, so to speak, of say, um, you know, didn't she say something about, about black people being like a, like a colonized minority or something like that. I don't remember what it said. This is mental. And then, of course, that it all has to bring it. The third criterion of a culturally relevant pedagogy is that it must bring in critical theory as its perspective. And if it's going to be done with cultural competence, we can bet that in those culturals, cultural competence is going to be tied to race, as they always do, because race is how you structurally determine a society that's structurally racist, if you believe critical race theory. So race is going to have a culture that's determined by being oppressed by the structural determinist society with a white supremacist superstructure and anti-blackness and yada yada. Yada, yada, then what you're looking at is that you're bringing critical race theory in under the name of culturally relevant pedagogy, and you're using that to A, critique social structures, B, teach kids to be activists, uh, and C, to give them the critical consciousness, it explicitly says that, but specifically the critical consciousness of their race that they're now going to tuck into the concept of cultural competence. So cultural competence becomes a uh, shield word because only the only way that cultural competence is is the only way that cultural expression is authentic and therefore exhibiting expertise and competence is if it's going to echo what the critical race theory says. So a culturally relevant pedagogy, if you didn't already know and you probably did, but you needed to back it up, is based in critical theory. Therefore, because of the way that they're going to treat race and ethnicity in critical race theory. So yes, CRT culturally responsive or relevant teaching, either one, does contain critical race theory. And in fact, it's a broad, it's a, it's a slightly broader way of thinking about education that is going to base its core goals on critical race theoretic thinking. Two of the three primary goals are rooted in critical race theory, uh, where race is concerned, but it's going to be for other cultures like so-called gay culture or so-called trans culture or so-called lithsexual culture or so-called xenogender culture or so-called disabled culture or deaf culture or blind culture or any of these other cultures that they want to insist that identity equals culture. Um, two of the three categories that they give are going to be rooted in those critical theories of that identity, including critical race theory. Cultural competence is going to be defined in terms of developing an authentic expression of what critical race, in other words, what critical race theory says about your 
uh, racial identity and the culture that goes with it, which is determined by the oppression of the uh, existing system, and then that you actually have to become a critical activist. The third of the three components is academic success, which they aren't achieving by any measure. Look at the schools across the country. That's just not happening. Why? Because rather than teaching through rigorous methods like phonics, for example, in reading or whatever methods happen to be rigorous for teaching mathematics to elementary kids. I taught college. I have no idea what little kids learn. Probably not the very kind of, I think, intuitive but confusing method pushed through by Common Core. Um, I think that that's great to come back to later and learn later on and you really learn what the mathematics means. But the algorithmic do-it form is probably more developmentally appropriate for, say, second and third graders. Um Rather than using pedagogical approaches to teach reading, mathematics, etc. that matter, you're spending a lot of time doing cultural bullshit and teaching kids to be activists and inculcating a cultural uh, cultural competence rooted in uh, critical consciousness. So cultural competence in critical consciousness rooted in identity factors uh, interpreted through a Marxist lens. So, yes... Culturally re responsive or relevant, doesn't matter which one. Also culturally sustaining teaching. These things are actually uh, vehicles by which these various Marxist tools are being brought in under the broader sounds good umbrella of multiculturalism, which ultimately upholds this notion of kind of a uh, every culture is, is somehow like untouchable and like pristine snow, kind of noble savage-ish, uh, and um, has to be respected as such and treated as a form of expertise uh, and a complete level playing field, yada, yada, yada. So now you know culturally responsive teaching, culturally relevant teaching, again, basically the same thing, culturally sustaining teaching, which is taking this to even crazier level, boils down to incorporating identity-based Marxism into education with the lie that it's also about creating academic success. And how do you know it's a lie even though they say it? Because they're not achieving it anywhere because they're wasting all their time teaching critical theory lesson uh, or reinterpreting mathematics in terms of critical theory or uh, turning your reading lesson into a critical theory lesson, talking about how that makes you feel and all this crap instead and uh, spending a lot of time dealing with let's make this more culturally relevant or culturally responsive or culturally um, competent and teaching about culture, 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 culture and keeping everything in the world of these nonsense social studies while teaching the kids, as it said repeatedly in this paper, to be activists in service to that cultural competence and critical consciousness that they're raising. So, ta-da, culturally relevant teaching is rooted in critical race theory, and there's no getting around it, even though it didn't say that explicitly in this paper. It does in others, but this is kind of a foundational paper, so this is the one I wanted to read to you. So now you know, now you have the evidence. Sorry it took so long. Just wait till the SEL paper. It's even longer.